Hello and welcome to episode 103 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Deep into February here, Mike, and yeah. well, last week was our two-year anniversary. Right. And today's just an ordinary day. Just an ordinary day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like in the uh, Catholic Church, what they call ordinary time. So there's nothing special about it. You know, it's kind of, it's after Easter and after the... Uh, you know, the 40 days after Easter, and then yeah. it's ordinary time in August and September, you know? That's where we are now. We're in adult music ordinary time. It was a weird rainy day here in Japan, and it was really good for listening to music, and so that yeah. makes every day special. We don't worry about the weather because we've always got lots of good music to listen to. If only it rained every day. I'd never stop listening to music, <laughs> and I'd probably never go out of my house. Well, it's hard to find places <laughs> that rain more than it does here, at least for part of the year. <laughs> this is usually the drier season. Yeah, well, I can think of places in the, you know, northwest USA and, you know, yeah, I guess. southwest Canada, you know, where it right. rains a lot. But, you know, I like Japan a lot, but uh, it's the wrong place for me in so many ways. And one of the reasons is because it rains so much. I'm just <laughs> not really a rainy day person, mm. although I'm becoming one more and more as I get older because I just want to stay home. You know, just, oh, I oh, can't go out today. I got to listen to music, <laughs> you know, can't sit on yeah. a bench somewhere and read a book, so. Well, let's see. We have news, first of all. The news, we have some yeah. Classical news. We have, uh, we're going to pull out the Dies Irae theme for this one. So hit it, Russ. Okay, let me dust it off. Here we go. And there it is. We learned this week about the uh, composer, the Austrian composer, Friedrich Serha, has died at the age of. 96 and he was a he's a fairly well-known composer especially in austria he's very well known during the 20th century and uh, i think he was active up until the end i don't really know all that much about his music but i do know that he was a major player in the classical composing world mm. i do have a few recordings of his music i'll have to dig them out and listen i should have done it this week but too much uh working there so rest in peace friedrich zerha and that's right. a good long life 96 i should be so lucky to live to that age but we'll see both of us should. Yeah. Music keeps you young, whether you play or listen or do both. And you know, hopefully we'll have uh, many more years to keep making and listening to music. Now, tonight we've got a kind of interesting program. We've got a symphonic bread sandwich with a little chamber music meat in the center in the classical program. We do. And we've got all drums in jazz, but yeah. today's drummers are not just guys who sit there and keep the beat. Uh, they compose music and uh, do a lot of other interesting things too. Yeah, and as with jazz drummers, they seem to really uh, bring out the best in their um, soloists somehow. Yeah, right. I, I feel like when you get a like a sax player, a, a soloist on a jazz <laughs> album, if the, if the drummer's the leader, they really sparkle somehow. Yeah, uh, there's something something to do with. Um, yeah, the energy. Yeah, the energy. Yeah. So that's all coming up. But before we get into the music, I want to remind everyone that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to discuss tonight. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform. comes from France, and you can follow us there as well. Look us up, Adult Music Podcast. You get the playlists and the podcast all in one place. Also, if you can't see the full description or links for the recording lists on whatever app you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's 
clear and easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a friend. If you give us a ranking also or take a minute to write a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations and that helps us make our audience grow. You can also come over and check us out on Facebook. We get some extra info during the week. We put up some photos there from our little anniversary get-together last weekend. And also, I put up new releases throughout the week. Mike puts up some classical music extras as well. You can leave a message or comment there. Interact with the artists that we talk about, because they usually respond and uh, give us some That's feedback. really nice. Yeah, the jazz artists especially. I'm going to start putting up... You're starting to put up like album covers for the new jazz albums. I'm going to start doing that for the classicals, because I see loads of them that we never talk about. Yeah. And I'll have to... Because I just can't get to them. But um, I'm going to put them up. I think I did put one up for the opera Turandot by uh, Puccini for um, Antonio Papano um, mm. conducted one. And whenever he does a big opera like that, it's always great. And of course, we're not going to talk about it like on the podcast <laughs> for reasons that we'll explain right. next week yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we've got something operatic coming next week. But I'll explain yeah. why next week. That's a little tease. Not that we don't like it, or at least not that I don't like it, you know. Right. I think if I were to do an opera podcast, I, you would be with a partner and we do one or two operas a week and that's it because mm -hmm. it takes a lot. There's a lot in an opera, right. even if you're just listening to it. I usually uh, put up the YouTube link for those. And a lot of the time I'm the first mm -hmm. viewer and yeah. you know, if an album has a release date and I check it early in the morning, it's already that day in Japan here. And yeah. many times I'm the first one to uh, check it out, which is pretty exciting. So yeah. I share them right away. Maybe we'll get to some of them if we find a good combination. Maybe not, but uh, you can always come over and check out the Facebook if you want some new jazz, if you like my choices. If not, maybe you'll come to like them anyway. I to say, since this, this uh, podcast has begun, my jazz collection has grown exponentially and also worryingly. <laughs> so many yeah, no more shows. There's a lot of good jazz out there. Who knew? Yeah. Well, this is one way to find out right here by listening to adult music. Yeah, and in addition to that, if you want to get in touch uh, directly, you can also send us an email. We'd like any comments, questions that you have. We'll be sure to reply. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast. It's all one word at gmail.com. And additionally, we're kind of sharing our audience, like-minded listeners who are interested in music things with some other podcasts. We'd like to recommend Tom Gauker's podcast, Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast with a lot of well-known musicians, famous artists. We've got another one, Famous Interviews in Neon Jazz. It's by Joe Domino. He interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And then we've got a more jazz-focused one, Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. And this looks at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. They play snippets from each version and discuss the history of the original and the different versions. You can find links for all those podcasts at the bottom of the description. If you stick on to the end, I'll play the little promos for each of those at the end of the podcast. So if you need more music podcasts, check them out. I really should listen to that uh, jazz standards one because, you know, educate myself a little more. You know, mm. I could use that. I'm not as well grounded in the, uh, the jazz standards as I should be. Um, it helped me out in this week's listening. Uh, we'll, Did it really? We'll get to that. That's right. Because there's, right. Um, uh, you recognize those patterns and uh, yeah. you know where some new things come from. But more on that later. One of the interesting things for me in jazz is like, I usually you'll hear like a, a standard and, you know, say something like around midnight and you, you just, then you hear like a vocal version of it and you just didn't know there were words yeah. to it. There's mm. so many jazz tunes that I just know from instrumental versions that I don't right. really 
know that even that there are words, never mind what the words are. Mm. So, you know, I should really listen to that. All right. So we're ready to get down to it. Let's talk Let's about it. one of my paisans here. Hey. Uh, <laughs> classical era or really gallant era, gallant classical era composer Luigi Boccherini. And this is a composer I have to say that I don't know enough about. And I'm going to hmm. talk about that a little bit too. Anyway, the album is the Sixth Symphonies A Quattro, Opus 35. This is performed by the Orchestra of the 18th Century, led by, just as a leader here, Marc Destrubet. And this is on the Glossa label. I found out something interesting this week. You know, the composer Domenico Scarlatti, the uh, yeah. composer of um, many short keyboard works, or over 500 mm -hmm. of them. And uh, I love a Scarlatti sonata. They're just, really make my day when I hear them. I have loads of albums of them that I too many really but I still keep getting them <laughs> anyway Boccarini was born in uh, Tuscany in Lucca okay which is kind of in the same province that Florence is in and I've spent lots of time in Florence so I feel kind of close to him okay he like Domenico Scarlatti spent the last years of his career and life in Madrid Spain oh Okay, and uh, he, he was there for 37 years, and he went there when he was 25 years old. So he's sort of like me coming to Japan. He just kind of went off to Spain and stayed there <laughs> until he died. <laughs> Is that what I'm going to do? Because at the moment, at the moment, it's looking like it. I, re I really Could did want to go back to the U.S. one day, but I don't know. The whole world seems to be like eroding or something. <laughs> I, I feel like I've got to stay here. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Anyway. He was, um, the reason he went, now he went to, um, um, Boccarini went to uh, Madrid um, when he was 25, and I remember 25 very well, because he was, to put it in a way that's in line with our adult music logo, chasing some tail. <laughs> okay? He was, he was after a lady, and the lady in question was the attractive younger sister of the great diva of the moment, Maria Teresa Pelliccia, and her name... The, the girl he was chasing was uh, Clementina Pelliccia. She was also a soprano. So, you know, perfect for a composer. You know, you, 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 got, you got the woman, she sings. What, what's not to like? All right, so that's all you need. And they were married, in fact, in 1769. So he successfully oh, okay. tracked her across Europe and uh, finally married her in 1769. Boccarini had followed her from Italy through France and finally to Spain. So he really, he was only there because of her. I have to say, when I came to Japan, I did not chase a woman here. Now, you got to wonder, why would Italians ever leave Italy? It's, you've been there, right? Yeah. It's wonderful. It's so beautiful. There's great food. There's all these ruins. It's, it's got history. It's got food. It's got beautiful women. I guess, I guess if you're chasing one, would be... Well, there you go. That's one of the reasons. Mm. There are really three reasons I could think of why anyone would ever leave Italy. One of them, the first and the most popular, for a woman... The second reason, for money. Now, that's right. the reason my ancestors left Italy for the United States. And the third reason, of course, is as is to avoid being murdered. So, <laughs> so, those are the three. Otherwise, you're just going to stay there, all right? Mm -hmm. Because it's just really a perfect place. You get that, you know. I could stay there. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, you get that wonderful Mediterranean weather, friendly people. It's really nice. All right, so we're listening to these... Um, Symphonies, they were all recorded in 17, oh, sorry, they're all composed, sorry, in 1782, 1782. So this is really a, the beginning of Mozart's um, career in uh, Vienna, which is, was his, the final stage of his um, career. Mm. 
Uh, the symphonies are titled A Quattro in four parts, but are really in five parts. There are two violin sections, viola, cello, and basso continuo. We hear the harpsichord on all of these works. Wind instruments were added later to these works, and they're not used on this recording. We get the actual kind of original versions here. The winds, you're not missing much. They simply doubled different string parts, so you just got some more, you know, sort of orchestral color when they mm. played. Um, the harpsichord is not in the original score, uh, but the orchestra of the 18th century added it because it was common practice to use them back in the day. Indeed, we sometimes hear them in uh, Haydn symphonies and sometimes not in the same symphony. It depends on how the ensemble decides to play them. So it's really up to the performer. These works are much closer to the chamber music ideal than to the orchestral ideal. Now, Boccherini was one of the uh, the big name composers of the uh, late 18th century. But when we think of that period, we think of Haydn and Mozart. And the reason that we think of them and not Boccherini is because Haydn and Mozart developed what we think of as the classical style. And Boccherini never really, um, he could write in the classical style, but he had his own sort of way of organizing music. So let's get to that in a minute. It's better to listen first and then sort of talk about it later. He's not writing in any sort of formal way. He's really going a lot by instinct. And uh, that can be interesting to listen to. Okay, so on CD... Uh, See, there is a two CD set, by the way, or and this will show up if you're streaming as well. They separate it into two different uh, discs, as it were. Mm. All right, so the first one, they're all three movement works too. So we start with uh, Sinfonia. Uh, by the way, the pronunciation of that word in Italian anyway is Sinfonia. Americans often say Sinfonia, but um, it is Sinfonia. Okay. Sinfonia Quattro a Quattro. Hmm. This one's in F major, opus 35, number four. And uh, first movement has a warm opening. Uh, the strings at this quiet level, it, they come in like right away and they sound really distant. And when they increase in volume, the recorded sound sounds like it was recorded in one of those uh, communal high school shower rooms. Remember when you were kind of <laughs> after gym, you had to take a shower and everybody's shouting and their sound is echoing off the walls. It's a little like that. Now, this sound is getting lost in the acoustic. This is not a well-recorded album. All of the works are like this the entire two hours, although <laughs> the slower movements seem to have different mic settings, so they're a little better. But even so, there's too much room noise on all of these recordings. I wouldn't say, though, that the mic is too distant. It's more like the space itself is the issue. Hmm. And the booklet note doesn't indicate the name of the space, so I don't know where this was recorded. Uh, the string detail comes up sounding well enough. Um, you hear all the parts. This is surprising to me, really, because this is on the Glossa label, and Glossa recordings tend to be on the dry side. This is kind of the opposite. So they're off they often air more on the the non-sort of room sound side, and here we're getting, like, lots of room sound. Anyway, as the music goes, uh, the pacing is well taken, and there are some more emotional passages uh, than you get in Haydn or Mozart, uh, who tend to go for darkness harmonically when they, they're portraying emotion. Mm. They go for that, especially Haydn, he'll go for this like Sturm und Drang. And Mozart can get really dark too. I was just having a conversation the other day about, oh, I don't like, somebody was telling me they didn't like Mozart because it's too pretty. I'm like, oh man, I, can't, I just I just <laughs> rattled off a list of, because we heard the uh, Wiekenkur Olafsson right. album, which is really dark. He goes, it gets darker as it goes. He just sort of arranged like that. So I gave her a list of works to listen to and then I don't know how I'm sure she's uh, mm -hmm. all depressed now, but <laughs> if, if she listened to them, but Mozart isn't all like decorative. A lot of it gets really psychological for that era. Okay. So quieter passages uh, positively sound like they were recorded underwater. Ugh. 
the ear will adjust, but it, my ear, usually my ear will adjust, but to this recording, it didn't adjust enough. I just wish the recording were closer. It gets loud during forte passages. Uh, notice that Boccherini doesn't write in the traditional sonata form that Haydn and Mozart were developing. I'm sure he was aware of it. So what I noticed about listening to Boccherini's music, especially here, now he wrote a lot of cello works that we hear very often, and I'm just familiar with them, so I don't really think about this, but hearing like a symphonic work by him, all strings, I noticed that they're not in the uh, traditional style. Like we have expectations when we hear Haydn and Mozart. This is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and mm. then that's going to happen. It's sort of like in a Western, if you're watching a Western, when uh, the gunfighter comes into the, uh, the saloon, you know there's going to be a gunfight or a challenge or something. It's just part of the whole thing. Well, that sort of thing, not the gunfighting part, but <laughs> there, if you understand the, the classical style, you, certain, you know that certain harmonic things are going to have to happen at certain times. For example, we're going to get a bridge into the dominant key or something like that in the exposition, that sort of thing. And then when they don't do it, that's where the, all, all the excitement comes in or they kind of subvert your expectations. Now, with the Boccherini, he's sort of um, subverting our expectations all the time. If your ears are trained in Heine and Mozart, you might think this music sounds formally wrong, but we need to use a different approach when we're uh, listening to Boccherini. We need to understand the formal style Heine and Mozart developed wasn't yet the norm when Boccherini and others were writing. And since all composers afterwards sort of um, played off that norm, for example, Beethoven, and Beethoven became this real giant, we sort of expect the music has to go like that and that uh, Boccherini wasn't doing it right, but that's not the case. Um, we just have to kind of like sort of put our expectations aside and just listen to what's happening to really understand him. Boccherini's music probably would have sounded exciting to listeners of the time. And to this day, Italians really um, speak well of him. They, they mm. really think he's one of their best composers. Themes repeat at the end, but the harmony and material tend to go where Boccherini wanted them to when flashes of inspiration hit. Uh, the movement comes across as cheerful and upbeat with some passionate moments. Second movement, Andantino. The sound seems to have improved in this movement. It sounds a bit more closely recorded, probably because it's quiet. The theme has a pleasant rustic feel with a droning bass for the opening passage. And again, unlike with Haydn and Mozart, it's hard to track where Bocconini is going to go formally. The surprises in Haydn and Mozart occur within the formal structure. In Boccherini, the surprises are the unpredictable structure. You really don't know what's <laughs> coming next. In Haydn and Mozart, you know what's coming next, but harmonically they can sub subvert that expectation. And because what's coming next doesn't come, that's where, where you get surprised. An example of this in this particular work would be the crescendo passage just before the three-minute mark. This is track two of CD1. And pretty much everything that happens between repeats of the theme. Pacing is excellent, and the feel of this music is well captured by the ensemble. The movement has a sort of rondo feel with its opening theme that keeps coming back. The third movement, Allegro Vivace, Tempo di Minuetto, in the middle. Uh, we're back in that watery acoustic here, but let's listen past it to the wonderfully fluid playing. Yeah, in a way, the acoustics are a real shame because I think these performances are really good. And this is probably a CD or an album that I would have listened to often were the acoustic not putting me mm. off so much because the playing really is excellent. The opening material leads to a minuet, but the rather boxy rhythm often gives way to more fluid phrases. So that's pretty interesting. At 2 minutes 13 seconds, we hear the opening thematic material again. Notice the quick and surprising changes of texture. Again, if we're trained in Haydn and Mozart, we're not going to appreciate the uniqueness of this music readily. It's very spontaneous in its use of thematic material. Yeah, I want to give some uh, 
praise to the uh, the orchestra here because they pace this this music beautifully. They have a s- sense of excitement about it. It doesn't sound careful like we've mentioned. This is one of the things that really puts me off when the orchestra is like really just reading the mm. score and trying to get all the dynamics right and not, you know, sort of giving the work any energy. These guys, uh, this uh, the orchestra of the 18th century, really give these works a lot of energy. You can tell they really are interested in it and really like it. Okay. Sinfonia 6 a 4, Sinfonia 6 a 4 would be next. The Allegro Vivace, I'm really being bothered by the acoustic here. It's slightly better than the previous symphony. Accents and fortes have a body and the bass comes across strongly. Tempos are well judged as they are really throughout this album. These works are all of a piece in that they're all going to rely on Boccherini's instincts in deciding where they're going to turn harmonically and texturally. At the cadence of three minutes, we get something rather mysterious, followed by an agitated outburst of three minutes and 18 seconds that quickly decrescendos. There are familiar harmonic, melodic, and dynamic markers that help the movement sound familiar, but the material doesn't repeat like it would in a Haydn and Mozart work. It's kind of varied uh, in surprising ways. The final chords really do sound a bit watery and don't impact as well as they should. Second movement, track five, disc one, Andante Lento. Um, another slow movement that sounds more closely recorded. The bass registers well, and here I like the way at a minute and 20 seconds, the material goes into a brief staccato before um, moving on to a legato melody. There are a lot of these type of sudden surprises. The ensemble handles the music with understanding. This is a rather long movement. It's almost seven minutes long for a slow movement of the period. And there are all sorts of detours that the material takes before arriving at something familiar again. The movement acts sort of like a rondo. He seems to like these rondo, these returning Hmm. theme, sort of middle movements, which is very unusual. Haydn and Mozart usually use the rondo as the third movement as a structuring element. The third movement here, though, is presto, minuetto, presto. So he's got the minuet in the middle. It has a folk dance feel to the beginning, proceeding with short phrases. The dance abruptly changes to another at about 30 seconds and then quietens to a brief trio at the 46 second mark before the heavily accented dance we heard repeats. At a minute and 34 seconds, we hear the opening dance again. There's a brief coda before the quiet ending. Okay, the last um, symphony on disc one is uh, Symphonia Two in E-flat major. This has a lively opening. Uh, the sound is being recorded in the shower again. Oh boy, it's a bit muddy. The playing is very lively and energetic. A lot of thematic material gets extended or takes brief detours, as I've come to expect now after the first two works. Themes are all appealing. At about the 2 minute and 40 second mark, the thematic material unexpectedly shifts into the minor, sounding more like a whim than any dramatic (laughs) calculation. One of the things about Boccherini's music, the booklet note points out, is that there's a je ne sais quoi, or an I don't know how it's done quality to his music, or I don't know why I'm doing it where it comes across appealingly, but you can't quite pinpoint the reason. I'm getting a sense of that here at this uh, 2 minute 40 second mark. That's hard to talk about, but you get a sense of it in the change from the minor at 2 minutes 40 seconds. It sounds like the minor material repeats in the fourth minute. The movement finds a brighter mood to end in, but it's not quite as enthusiastic as the opening was. Again, this is not the orchestra slowing down or losing enthusiasm. This is Boccherini's writing. He changes things. Uh, things alter as um, the movement goes on. The moods kind of change because mm. of the material that precedes it. And it's really interesting because of this. And again, it's not very Mozartian or Haydn-esque, as we would say. It's Boccherinian. <laughs> <laughs> 
I should do that like an adjective for every composer, see what I can come up with. Beethovenian is a famous one. Right. Okay. All right. So we don't end with the mood we started with, even though we're in the same key. At the second uh, movement, the middle slow movement, Andante, starts with a flowing, mysterious quality, leading to a quick cadence at the 15 second mark, then flows on into unexpected areas with no full cadence, ending a phrase until a minute and 10 seconds. There is one in there that is reached, but continues into new material. This is really interesting, too. Like, he doesn't stop the cadence. The, he kind of runs over the cadence. It happens, and the music just continues like the cadence wasn't there. You kind of have to be listening to hear mm. it. So it's, it doesn't act as a resting place. It just acts as kind of like a... It's sort of like when you, when you, if you're swimming, if you reach the end of the pool and then you push off the wall and immediately start swimming back, it's <laughs> kind of that sort of quality. You don't catch your breath. Um, that's in a minute and 10 seconds. The music more or less continues in this vein with various sections popping out at unexpected places and it ends calmly. And the track nine, the third movement, Allegro Giusto, has a dance quality to it. The thematic material comes in short symmetrical phrases which are lengthened and broken up afterwards. Several cadences are heard leading up to the one ending the section in a minute and four seconds, but the material speeds over them, and we don't get the sense of rest they give us. At 2 minutes and 11 seconds, a contrasting second section begins. We hear the opening material shortly afterwards, but as with these works, the material doesn't continue in the way we heard it at the beginning of the work, so we're not hearing a repeat. Yet, all the familiar themes are eventually heard, not necessarily in the order they were first heard, or in the way they were first heard. And it's interesting, it takes some attention and getting used to. It ends on an almost shy note, with a quiet last note of a phrase sounding, but not leaving us secure. It's almost like the movement was left off at this point, and we just kind of, we're just left to ourselves. Alright, we go on to the next uh, CD, or the next section of the uh, streaming, if you're listening there. Symphonia 3. Uh, in A major. Allegro Giusto, this is track one on CD two. This has a cheerful opening with light rising figures. The opening sounds like it's repeated in the first minute, but veers off in another direction, cheekily adding extensions to themes to start this process. <laughs> we get a foot. It's really interesting uh, the way he kind of works his themes. They're really mm. unpredictable. We get a full cadence just after the two minute mark. And we're into what would be thought of as the development, where we hear a lot of key changes. At 2 minutes and 58 seconds, we're at the beginning again, and again, the material that follows is shuffled. So it's similar, but different. Like they used to say in New York, it's the same, but it's different. You know? So <laughs> Boccherini's kind of like that. A fairly straightforward sonata-like movement there. Sonata-like. It's not really a sonata in the way. Because Haydn really sort of invented the uh, classical sonata style. People often will ask me about this. Well, what is a sonata? Well, it depends on what period you're talking about. When Scarlatti mm. wrote his sonatas, sonata was the, just a word that was used to distinguish something from cantata. So a cantata is a sung piece, and a sonata was a not sung piece. It's a sounded or played piece on an instrument. There's no vocals. That's all it meant. But by the time of uh, Haydn and Mozart, they came up with the idea that there would be two themes that would then be developed and come back at the end. So it's sort of like two opera characters. It's sort of like a little opera in sound, a sonata. And Beethoven's piano sonatas would be like that as well. So if you listen to a Beethoven piano sonata, that always happens in the first movement, okay, the, the right. operatic part. That's the intellectual part. All right, we can get into more about that some other time, but let's go on. The Andante movement of this um, work opens with a rather comical, awkward rhythm. This is track two of CD2. 
with the melody bouncing awkwardly above. Uh, most of the bass, this is intentional, by the way, it's supposed to have a comic sort of feel to it. And the um, ensemble captures this well. They're very impressive with their um, capturing of the, the moods that Boccherini puts across, and often they're very fleeting. Most of the bass is played pizzicato. At a minute and 12 seconds, the opening theme repeats, and at a minute and 20 seconds, changes a bit from the first line, from the first time. It's as though Boccherini is writing spur-of-the-moment improvisations on the formal material into the score. At 2 minutes and 21 seconds, a minor key is heard. Uh, this would be the B section of a ternary form. And at 2 minutes and 52 seconds, we get the opening material again, but interestingly, a bit more somber than comical this time. So we hear that opening awkward sort mm. of material, but now it's it's not quite as energetic. It's, it's, uh, these little changes are really interesting. The performers are very good at putting these differences across, and the fact that they're even aware of them really speaks well of them. Uh, these really are good performances and very alert to the material. The sound in these slow movements is slightly better than it is in the louder, quicker, fast movements. And then we get to the Allegro Manon Presto, and I'm hearing like a 151 chord pattern, like tonic dominant tonic. Mm. I think that's the dominant. My ear isn't so good at these things. <laughs> I can't really label them. But I'm just guessing because that's what this is commonly used in this sort of chord pattern. It sounds confident and carefree. This is extended up to a minute and 10 seconds where we suddenly hear a darker minor section played in octaves that quickly leads back to the opening. At a minute and 40 seconds, a new quiet section begins. This section goes on for some time and is melodically inventive. We get back to what is a rondo theme at 2 minutes and 39 seconds. Another departure happens at 3 minutes and 20 seconds. And we also revisit the minor key octave lines at around 3 minutes and 45 seconds. Then back to the theme and the end of the movement. Okay, tracks four through six, Symphonia one in D major. This has a very Mozartian opening um, with chirping answers to the upwards moving opening. Now at this point, Mozart was, um, at the point these were written, he had written quite a bit of music, but uh, the major part of his career was just starting at this point. So um, I think, you know, Bocconini wouldn't have heard any of that. And it has chirping answers to the upwards moving opening and some slashing bows on repeated notes. Mm. There's a nice false note at 48 seconds leading to another section in this overall cheerful opening. At a minute and 38 seconds, we get the opening theme again. This time the slashing bow figure is extended, going to another false note as the first section did. This rather quiet section feels disembodied in the acoustic, being obscured by the room ambience. Ugh, well... We have to deal with it at this point. At around the three-minute mark, a development section starts with a false recapitulation at three minutes and 11 seconds. Though this is in Boccherini's style, uh, following his whims, he has to have Mozart in mind here, because what other music would have sounded like this? Or maybe Haydn, because Haydn would have been the more established composer at that time. There are a lot of Mozartian textures and harmonic tricks used. Another false recap is heard at the four-minute mark. A false note sends it moving in another directions where more modulations to different keys occur. Uh, there's a nice detour in the material just after the fifth minute when we swerve into a new section. This movement has no formal recapitulation, but we hear a lot of the opening material reworked and represented in different locations. It always throws me off. I'm just so used to Haydn and Mozart now. This requires listening to get used to, repeated listening. Uh, Bocconini makes a lot of that false cadence that we hear. We hear it one last time at 6 minutes and 42 seconds before heading to the ending. Second movement, Andante, a pretty conjunct legato melody, floats over the accompaniment. 
At 37 seconds, there's a false cadence, which is starting to sound thematic in this work. This, this particular one, the first symphony, has a lot of um, false cadences. So it sounds like it's part of the meaning of the work, the, you know, the not arriving where you think you're going. A cadence is reached at 50 seconds, then a repeat of the opening. We hear the false cadence again at the 1 minute and 27 second mark, the approach taken much more quietly this time. I don't know if these dynamics are in the score or if it's in the orchestra's interpretation. I'm kind of hoping it's in the score because uh, the whole idea that they would play it differently every time is really interesting mm. to me. Uh, just before the two-minute mark, a middle pastoral sounding section begins with long-held bass notes. We come back to the opening material rather quickly, again, subtly changed from the opening. There's a cadence at 2 minutes and 58 seconds. Then we get a coda of short phrases followed by pauses. And sections in the middle section are repeated. The ending of the opening section comes back. We hear a false cadence again just after the fourth minute. Then the full cadence at the end. And what a relief that is because we've heard so many false cadences in this work that it really, the arriving back at home feels exceptionally good. All right, track six, the third movement of Symphony One, Prestissimo. The massed dancing strings opening this movement really suffer in the acoustic. How many times am I going to say this? There's only one more <laughs> symphony left. I'll only say it once more. Uh, they sound too distantly recorded. The movement itself is interesting with unusual changes of tempo from fast to slow in answering phrases. The middle of the movement consists of phrases with long pauses afterwards. There's an interesting fast approach followed by slower, more sparsely orchestrated unspooling phrases. And by unspooling, I kind of mean like there's, there's like a melodic line. It just keeps going on longer than you would expect it to. So the entire movement is unusual and interesting with novel techniques applied to the thematic material. This ends on an emphatically played phrase ending note. And we're at the last symphony next track seven through nine, symphony five in E flat major. The first movement track seven starts with a soft attack on smooth chords followed by a loud busier response. There's a nice shift into the minor at 48 seconds for a brief moment, then back to the major and a cadence. It's kind of like a cloud goes past the sun and then suddenly <laughs> the sun comes back out You know when you hear those effects. After this, the material goes into an odd place, ending with a cadence in another key. Then we get a repeat of the opening material. Though again, it doesn't unfold in the same way. This is a Boccherini fingerprint right here. We end on the tonic in the new key and go into the development. There's a cadence at the three minute mark at three minutes and 17 seconds. We're hearing the themes from the opening material, but again, Boccherini shuffles the material subtly. We get a brief shift to the minor after a cadence, just after the end of the fourth minute. And around the five minute, 19 second mark, we hear the opening material again, this time with a sudden brief shift to the minor, then back into the bright major key and a strong final cadence at the end. So it's kind of odd because we have to end in the major key and we go into the minor key right before the end and uh, we wonder if we're <laughs> going to get there, but we do. It's really nice. The second movement, Andante Suave Assai. Quarter notes followed by a dotted rhythm for the slow movement theme. At 36 seconds after a pause, the tempo suddenly picks up, seemingly doubled, which is really interesting. <laughs> that's, that's a real surprise. Mm -hmm. And the material now moves at a moderate tempo. He's probably writing the note values at half the length that they were before to get that speeding up of tempo. It's probably the same basic, mm. you know, beat. But anyway, at a minute and 55 seconds, we're hearing the same opening material again at the slower tempo. 
At 2 minutes and 28 seconds, we get to the doubling of the tempo or the halving of the note values. Um, but only for a brief moment as the slower opening tempo comes back at around 2 minutes and 50 seconds. And we head to the final cadence. This movement is about the changing tempo or the changing, yeah, it's the, the doubling of the uh, speed of the material, maybe. It would be a more accurate way to say it. The third movement, Tempo di Minuetto, is a rather rapid tempo for a menuet, and the theme doesn't really resemble the boxy phrasing that the dance form seems to invite. The theme is rather vigorous in its accented beats, followed by rushing string lines. The material repeats after the cadence. At 2 minutes and 2 seconds, after the cadence ending the first section, instead of a trio we get more of a development section. Stable harmony resumes briefly afterward. At around 2 minutes and 30 seconds, we hear the opening material again at 3 minutes and 40 seconds. It gets a few extended passages, but all the familiar rhythmic markers are heard again. And at 5 minutes and 19 seconds, we get a brief coda leading to the sudden end. And there it is. We've reached the end of this double album of really interesting music. For me, I'm always happy to hear a new recording of Boccherini's music, and especially if it's not his cello music because i've heard that a lot it's his cello works his cello sonatas and cello concertos have been recorded pretty often they're kind of key works for cellists uh, but we don't get to hear enough of his other music it do, it doesn't get recorded as often as it should um haydn and mozart really wound up outshining boccherini historically and part of the reason for that was beethoven's advocation of the two um, and Beethoven became like this a giant composer as well, whereas none of Boccherini's disciples did because they came up with the classical style, which was a very powerful style. Boccherini's music, though, was very popular in its day and rather unique in style and form. I think it takes a lot of listens to really get used to what he does and to really pick up a lot of the more subtle elements of these scores. Uh, he includes elements of the Galant, which is a very showy sort of um, surface level style, and the new classical style that Haydn and Mozart were developing. I'd personally like to get to know Boccherini's music better. Uh, the form didn't seem fixed in Boccherini's music and often veers into unexpected places. So this is a record I would have liked to have listened to a lot, but the recording suffers from too much room reverb in a not particularly good sounding space. The performances themselves, though, sound exemplary. I would have really enjoyed having this in a you know cleaner recording. Uh, we need more recordings of this repertoire of this caliber, um, but the sound needs to be inviting as well, and I'm afraid this album lets me down on that front. While all the works on the album are similar on the surface and none of them particularly stands out from the others, each has its own particular qualities when listened to. Uh, those qualities, I've, I've pointed out a few of them. You know, the thematic sort of... Um, either dynamics or rhythm or tempo or mm. false cadences or anything like that, harmony. The sound needs to be inviting as well. Okay. Boccherini's melodies, I mean, they're nice, but they're not particularly memorable. You're not going to go away remembering them unless you hear the work a lot of times, I guess. They're all appealing, though, but they all have their own individual approach with the overall fast, slow, fast form here. The overall arc of the works includes unexpected swerves. This really takes some getting used to. I think it's good for us, though, you know, th these new ideas in old times. We think we know a certain period of music and how people thought about form, but then we find out when we hear some of these other composers that that's not the case. This terrain seems familiar, but it isn't, and we really should be able to keep an open mind so that we can navigate that terrain in music, as in life. Right, because life throws us unexpected right. 
things as well. So anyway, what I would say about this album is I think you should hear Boccherini's music, and you might want to hear this, but just be prepared. The, uh, the acoustic isn't very good here. You have recordings of Boccherini's cello sonatas mm. and string quintets as well, but this is the mm. first time to hear his symphonies, and I thought they were enjoyable, but they don't make a lasting impression yeah. because of the unusual structure. Yeah, I'll have to hear them more in order to get comfortable with his style. And, to me, that invi- just invites repeated listening, though, because right. I want to hear them, get to know them, you know. And I did really enjoy the enthusiastic playing of this ensemble. Me I too. It was uh, really exciting to listen to, but I noticed the sound recording leaves something to decide. Uh, you know, getting a little bit muddy when the strings get big like that and that room sounds a little funny, yeah. but good performances. And yeah, it makes me want to hear more of his works. You know, I like cello the best, so I think I've listened to those the most. The quintets are kind of interesting too, yeah. but yeah. I'm pretty familiar with those myself. He's right. got, if you think about Boccherini, you think about CPE Bach where he's got all these weird harmonic surprises and Sudden right. slamming on the brace of the tempo. Boccherini has his own sort of version of that, you know, but it's just his own style. So I think that with repeated listening, he'd, he'd become yeah. a very appealing composer. We just need to hear it more and more. Anything else? You're all set with that? All good. All right. Because the next album, we go from, uh, you know, a, a recording <laughs> whose sound I didn't like very much to one whose sound is absolutely exemplary. I was knocked mm. out by the sound quality of this album. It is... String Quartets by Stephen Huff, Henri Dutilleux, and uh, Maurice Ravel. Now, you might wonder, what is Stephen Huff doing with these other two French composers? Well, he's got a very French-themed and sounding work himself. Let me just get to the rest of this. Um, This is performed by the Torcach Quartet. These days, they are Edouard Dusimbert, Violin 1, Harumi Rhodes, Violin 2, Richard O'Neill, Viola, and Andras Ferrer cello. Uh, Fahir is the only um, uh, remaining member of the original Tokash Quartet. Oh. And, and they've been around for a really long time, my, my entire lifetime. Now, the last time we heard this um, quartet play, we were a little disappointed by their recordings of uh, Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn. They had um, uh, Richard O'Neill was the violist. He had replaced um, the former violist in 2020. And Harami Rhodes had come into the um, the viol- the second violinist chair in 2018. So somehow the two of them being so new together, it wasn't really gelling on that album, I felt. Like balances were off. That is not the case here. They seem to have really gotten their sound together. Or maybe that was just a bad day that they recorded those on. And uh, this is a fantastic sounding album in every way. Okay, now let's get to the uh, works first. First we hear have a new string quartet composed in 2021 by Stephen Huff, our favorite pianist or one of our favorite hmm. pianists now huff is also a composer and his music isn't always very straightforward he can get really naughty and gnarly and sort of um you know hard to listen to let's say but that's not the case here this is a really straightforward very um, harmonically pleasing work it's his string quartet number one and it's subtitled les six rencontres and that's kind of a little uh pun in that title because if you know your music history you'll know Les Six were um, a set of six composers who were living in the uh, Montparnasse section of Paris in the early 1920s 
And first of all, let me just say this piece was composed specifically as a companion piece to the Dutilleux and Ravel string quartets oh. on this album. So he was thinking of them when he wrote it. The French composers in Les Six were Georges Auric, uh, Louis Duré, whose music, he's the only one of these people whose music I've never heard. Huh. <laughs> I don't think there are any recorded. I, I want to hear it, though, because he's the only one I haven't heard now. Uh, Arthur Honegger, Darius Mio, Francis Poulenc, who we're going to hear next week, by the way, and uh, Germain Taillefer. And we actually did a, an album of her piano music on this um, right. podcast last year. There are no musical references to these composers in the rencontre. Now, rencontre means like an encounter or a meeting. You know, you just kind of bump mm. into someone. And the, uh, the meetings themselves are unspecified by Huff. But he mentions, Huff does, that the piece is a puzzle. It's a six-movement work. It refers to Les Six. And I'm wondering, are we meant to figure which composer is represented in each movement? Oh, I think he's kind of... yeah. Not necessarily writing their style, but he's sort of um, evoking them, let's see, let's right. say. I'm going to give it a try, and if Mr. Huff listens to this podcast, uh, maybe he can tell me how many I've got right, and I'll go back <laughs> and find out if, if I've even got this the puzzle, the idea right. These composers influence Huff by the flavor of their music. They saw life in a different way. This is kind of important. After World War I had ended... Than someone like Ravel had, for example. So World War I occurred. Poulenc and Mio especially were able to discover poignance in the rough and tumble of daily human life after the war. Now, if you think about this, the third work on this album is Henri Dutilleux, which was composed in the 1970s, long after World War II. So we were living in a new world again. So these three works, well, the Huff work is written two years ago, but he's evoking the, the years between the wars via Les Six in that. So you can kind of think of it that way. Hmm. So when Poulenc and Millot um, write about you know the uh, daily human life, it appears as something like burlesque. There's a sort of um, dance hall sort of popular music of the time quality to their symphonic works. And I'd say that Huff sees the composers as a bridge between the Ravel work and the Dutilleux. That's why he wrote it here. Because they came after World War I and before World War II. Um, though some lived beyond World War II, like Poulenc and a few others. While Dutilleux wrote long after World War II. Okay. So we have a six-movement work, and they all have French titles. The first one is... Uh, Stephen Huff, by the way, is, is English. He's an English composer or pianist. The first work, the first movement, is called Au Boulevard. On the boulevard. You can think of the Champs-Élysées, perhaps. And Huff himself, he describes all of these. He gives us a few um, guiding sort of um, phrases. He, he refers to this as Stravinsky and Spike's elbow across the four instruments with jagged accents, darting arpeggios, and bracing white note harmonies. The main theme is suddenly transformed into technicolor for the central section, blushed with sentiment and exactly half-tempo. So that's what he says about it. Hmm. I thought it had an interesting opening with a chord blasting out of the speaker, yeah. uh, followed by thematic responses. Uh, the material doesn't sound particularly Stravinskyan or spiky to my ear. The material is rather pleasant, and I'm happy to say the Tokach sound more balanced on this album than they did on the Mendelssohn we previously talked about. They have gorgeous tone and recorded sound all around. The performance seems a bit on the slow side. I mean, it's hard to tell. It's a first recording of the piece, so you don't really know, you know, right. 
what other tempos it could go at. What I mean is um, I can hear it speeding up as other ensembles take it on because I've heard sort of similar sort of phrasing mm. played at a faster speed, I guess. The middle section has calm, a calm starry night quality to it. I'll listen near the end of the first minute into the second minute, and then we're back to the more excitable opening chord and short melodic answers. Appealing, interesting ending chord, inconclusive. Now, because um, Hoff describes this as Stravinsky, and I'm going to guess this is uh, representing Darius Mio, who he's meeting on the boulevard. So there's our first composer. That's my first answer to the puzzle. Second movement, or park, or in the park. Stephen Hoff says, under a pizzicato accompaniment, a gentle melancholy melody floats and is passed around the players in a haze of decorative variations. So this has an appealing, slow, ticking pizzicato accompaniment at the beginning. The melody is rather sweet and appealing, and that says Poulenc to me, Francis Poulenc. This does have an appealing, relaxed Poulenc-style popular song quality to it. Poulenc wrote a lot of popular songs as well as his more extended classical instrumental mm. works, especially in the fragment we hear at a minute and 50 seconds and just before. Calm ending and lovely movement. Third movement, a l'hotel, at the hotel. Huff says, a bustling fugato opens the movement, its short subject incorporating repeated notes, an arpeggio and a scale, and ends with offbeat snapping chords in pursuit. This has a rushing figure in all the voices at the beginning. Again, I feel like there's a bit of caution in the playing, but detail is coming through well. It sounds like it could go faster and sweep us along more by making the material sound more precarious. But the speed we're getting here is perfectly fine. I have no complaints about that. Good ensemble playing, not least in the multi-voiced Fugato parts. At around the uh, 2 minute and 45 second mark, there's a lovely high-pitched chord that leads to a pause that a more Fugato approach to the end. I really have no idea which of the Le six this would represent, so I'm going to have to guess because I've heard the other three movements coming up, that this has to be Louis Duré, because I don't know anything about his music, as I said at the beginning. I've never heard it. I would like to. I want to know what he did. Movement four, au théâtre, at the theater. Hoff says, um, this reveals a skeleton of a motif which dances in a recurring harmonic sequence, decorated with each repetition and more and more lurid colors, smeared with lipstick glissandos. And that word lipstick made me think this has to be Germaine Taillefer, the only woman of Le Six. She was the only woman mm. composer at the theater here. Um, though this movement actually, if you know the music of Jean Francais, who wrote a lot of like this really very French sounding, cheerful, um, light music, this reminded me of him a lot. Mm. Um, before a change of mood is ushered by the viola, pushing the music forward to a splashing climax. This is Stephen Huff talking now followed by despairing reprise and a conciliatory close. I thought this had a kind of burlesque quality to it, especially the mewling cat sound that one of the violins <laughs> plays in the first 30 seconds. That made me think of Jean Francais, because he, he, Jean Francais, because he's um, written music like that. The piece tiptoes forward like a practicing ballet dancer. It has a theatrical dance quality to it. So, au théâtre, there you go, that's the title. At one minute and six seconds, I think, I'm missing a digit here, there's an odd wavering cello line that disappears by the one minute and 30 seconds mark. Burlesque, ghostly sounds are heard in the second minute with more wavering tones. Sections change unexpectedly. We get a sort of dance theme. Then at the very end, a mysterious rising figure 
followed by a comment in the cello that leads to a high chord. Track 5, A L'Eglise. Hoff calls this a serene hymn for muted strings. I call this an homage to Arthur Honegger because he wrote a lot of, he, he wrote a pretty famous symphony that was based on religious themes. So I think it has to be him. Mm. Uh, sweetly played chords start the movement. The music moves into more of a late night quality by about the one minute and 20 second mark with a soft melody accompanied by warm string harmony. It's a brief movement, less than three minutes and appealing all the way through. The sixth movement, En Marche, which I guess is uh, at the market or it could just be on a walk or something too. Stephen Huff says a bustling moto perpetuo, which recalls earlier material and finally returns to the music from the opening of the work. Uh, this movement starts with a rushing figure as well, but of a different kind. Now, the only composer left is Georges Auric. We've heard his music in a lot of French movies of this period. He wrote mostly film music, so you have to go to the movies for mm. him. So then I was thinking, oh, maybe Au Théâtre would be him, but that's the theater and really not the cinema, I think. There's a quick change to a more chaotic texture at a minute and 16 seconds, but we quickly come to a variation of the opening material. There's a real sense of freedom and bustle here, and by the end, we're in high spirits, and we end on a big positive chord. I like the idea underpinning the piece. It's an enjoyable string quartet, well composed, as we would expect from Stephen Huff, and also immediately appealing, even in the spikier parts, which, I, to be honest, I didn't find very spiky. It's, it's all really appealing. Hmm. Okay, next we get to a rather challenging string quartet. And one we've talked, this is the third time, I think, that we're talking about this piece <laughs> on this uh, podcast, oddly enough. It's nice to hear that it's being recorded often. The last time we heard it was on the Quatuor Ebenz uh, recording of Round Midnight. This in the Schoenberg, yeah, uh, yeah. Beklerte Nacht. That was released in 2021. And that particular album also featured a composition by the quartet's cellist, Raphael Merlin, called Nightbridge that used the unusual structure of Ainsi la Nuit with its parentheses sections or parentheses, which recalled previous material and foreshadows coming material as a bridge or big parenthesis between this work and Schoenberg's Verklärte Nacht for string sextet. The sections mark parentheses in this work and in Merlin's act as reference points. Merlin's work was a good primer on what's going on in the Dutiu works. I feel like I'm more ready to understand what this is all about, hmm. but it's still a bit of a challenge. So you might want to hear that album, which won a gramophone award for best chamber music album last year. Okay, now this um, is um, a through composed work. It's all in sections, really. In this um, particular recording, the tracks are divided by really the parenthesis and then the following section are together. Usually all of these are sort of presented as different sections in the track listings, but here they're not. We are on track seven first. This is Libre et Souple, and then the Nocturne follows. We start with the fade-in of the famous opening chords, whose pattern will be heard throughout the piece. It's long and staccato. Dun, dun. And that, that rhythm just keeps being heard throughout, or that pattern. And it acts kind of like as a marker, so you sort of can identify something in all the textures that you're hearing, which really can be mind-boggling. Uh, the textures and tone achieved by the Tokach here are exemplary. Uh, this sounds like the Tokach Quartet of old, before the replacements of viola and second violin began in 2018. They sound like they're back on their form with these two new players. The sonic and tone of the recording makes this difficult work easier on the ear. I also like the way the movement is paced, so that all of the quick changes of texture register. Track 8, parenthesis 1. And Miroir d'Espace. 
mirror of space that means this starts with pizzicati always sounding like here now i mentioned on the Couture et Ben's performance that this sounded like someone making popcorn when everybody's pulling the pizzicatos <laughs> at the same time here i thought it was someone like sort of aggressively pulling an acoustic guitar strings off of the instrument <laughs> <You know? laughs> so i'm saying this performance is more emphatic and dramatic than the et Ben's performance although i did like that performance a lot I believe the Murat d'Espace section starts at about the 30-second mark with high harmonics in the violin and faint melodic lines in the lower end. I like the sound the Tokaj get for this rare, this rather, eerie section. Track 9, Parenthèse 2, and Litanies. The quick lines of Parenthèse 2, which finishes again with Pizzicati, leads to the emphatically played chords of Litanies at about the 30-second mark. Pizzicati in this section come across cleanly and vividly and pass from channel to channel in your speakers. Uh, the quartet is spread between the speakers. Notice we're hearing the attack on the opening chord in the same way it was presented at the beginning of the work. So here's our signpost. Pizzicati and harmonics quickly come and go. All textures beautifully realized and balanced in this performance. It's rich sounding and expertly played with real impact on the louder Pizzicati. Track 10, parenthèse 3, litanies it's like a soccer score, but uh, it's don't think of it that way. Okay, harmonics and muted pizzicati make up parenthèse 3. At the 41 second mark, there's a really beautifully played harmonic chord coming across as ghostly, as does the flowing rhythm of litanies 2 at the 50 second mark. I like the pizzicati bouncing from speaker to speaker at about a minute and 50 seconds. Every effect string instruments can make seem to be heard in this movement including an eerie sul ponticello we're playing on the bridge with the bow at about the 3 minute and 30 second mark. Track 11, parenthèse 4, Constellation Nocturne 2. It's three different sections. We hear the opening chord with its quick fade-ins immediately after the opening rushing figure and a lot of cool pizzicati again. By 40 seconds, we're in the Constellation's Constellation, I should say, section. Uh, the buildup of tension from 40 seconds to two minutes is amazing. This is really great performance. I'm convinced of that. Once the peak is reached, we move into quieter rushing material from two minutes and 30 seconds on, which crescendos to the ending drooping cello note. And then we finally get to the uh, final movement, track 12, or the final section, Tom Suspendu, um, Suspended Time. There's a recall of the opening chords of the piece, and following that are quick lines and really recollections of other brief patterns in the work. In the first minute, there are a lot of pizzicato lines. We hear bows being bounced off strings in the second minute and lots of careful fades on loudly attacked chords as the final chord quickly fades out. Okay, now if this is like me, you're trying to get to know this work better, I would absolutely positively hear this recording and I would also absolutely hear the Quatuor Abend's recording, which is uh, has a different approach. It's a little more, um, it's hard to explain. It's just kind of, it has softer contours, let's say. But I would hear, absolutely hear both of them. All right, and our last work here is by Maurice Ravel, of course, one of my favorite composers. His only string quartet in F major. This is a fantastic performance of this work, and there are a lot of them out there. So you're really getting this as sort of a bonus. It sounds great. The opening is taken rapidly, sort of the opposite to the way the huff work is played. It's more rapid than usual, actually. So I think 
because of that, this wouldn't be like a first choice for me, but it's a beautifully played uh, performance. The beautiful opening melody comes across well nonetheless at the fast speed. We hear a bridge to the second theme in a minute and 30 seconds and arrive at that theme's gorgeous modal melody at a minute and 49 seconds. Oh, I just love modal melodies. It's given a light, almost floating quality with the cello plucking the bass notes with deep resonance. Ensemble is well balanced with rich, clear sound throughout with melodic lines sounding sweet while the more dramatic sections come across emphatically enough. At four minutes and 40 seconds or so, we're back in the recapitulation. Ravel's always captivating harmonies are in full bloom throughout the performance. Uh, you want to remember the theme you hear at seven minutes and 28 seconds. It's heavily featured in the third movement. But first, we get the second movement. Assez vif, très rythme. It's a pizzicato-driven movement and rather in line with the uh, Dutilleux Quartet, so they're actually well paired here. The pizzicati have a vivid three-dimensional presence on this recording. It's interesting hearing um, this after the Dutilleux, as I said, as it used a lot of the same effects, pizzicati, su ponticello playing too. Like the first movement, the tempo taken here is on the fast side, but still feels comfortable. The middle section, starting just in the last 10 seconds of the first minute, softens the tone with its legato lines. The tone of the four instruments gets delicate midway through the third minute, appealingly so. Also, at the four minute mark, the soft pizzicato accompaniment is pushed forward enough so the listener notices them in the foreground, along with the main melody. At four minutes and 51 seconds, we have a transition back to the opening material, which is arrived at at five minutes and two seconds. Again, beautiful tone and presence on the ending pizzicato chord. All right, third movement, très lente, my favorite movement of this string quartet, by the way. Uh, there's a veiled quality to the tone the ensemble puts on the material. The sul ponticello accompaniment comes across clearly with this timbral quality. At a minute and 18 seconds, we hear the theme I wanted you to remember that we heard at the end of the first minute. Here is more up front and center. The quiet of this movement is beautifully realized and detail registers fully on this exceptionally clear recording. The cello gets a long time in the spotlight in the third minute, and I enjoyed the phrasing of that line. The theme at uh, 4 minutes and 10 seconds is taken at a perfect tempo, with accompaniment sounding clearly. At 5 minutes and 12 seconds, a more stark approach, I should say a starker approach, to the harmonic material is taken than we usually hear, to good effect. The ending harmonics sound great as well. Fourth movement, vif et agité, has an aggressive beginning. Uh, this movement has a roiling quality to it, no matter who plays it. And at high speed, we're hearing all elements clearly on this particular performance. I'm actually noticing connections between theme and accompaniment that hadn't registered to me before. And how it fits together, you know, that sort of thing. The beautiful shaping of the lines from a minute and 15 seconds on also makes this rather aggressive movement more endearing than it usually sounds. When the roiling lines appear, the Tokach really dig in, and again, the recording picks up the edge in the tone they produce at these points. I also love the way the harmony on the theme comes out at the four-minute mark. This is a great performance that makes the movement sound more of a piece than I usually perceive it to be. The approach to the end and the ending chord are perfectly taken, ending a performance of this much-recorded work that's among the best, although it does have its sort of individual characteristics, especially in the first and second movements. First, I want to give a shout out to the recording engineer, that's um, Mike Quam, and recording producer Judith Sherman. This entire album is astonishingly clear and vividly recorded. The performances are exceptional as well. 
I'll admit I was a bit hesitant about hearing this after the previous Mendelssohn release, but the Tokach have found their feet again, and I'm glad to hear them so much in form. The Huff piece is enjoyable, and now I'm going to be puzzling over the movements and seeking out Le Six's music to get more deeply into them. And of course, we're going to have to keep hearing this Huff piece now. It's very clever of him to have uh, written a piece like this that's just going to make me puzzle over you know, whose sort of flavor he's um, putting mm. across. I thought the performances of the Dutia and Ravel Quartets were insightful, bringing out a lot of connections that hadn't registered with me before, and that just makes me happy. I'm always trying to learn new things or find out about new connections. It's probably why I listened to classical music in the first place. This is due not only to the balance and pacing, but to the recording quality as well, and I'd highly recommend you hear this album. I'm going to mention it's on the Hyperion label. That means you're going to have to buy it. But there you go. It'll be worth it in this case. Or you can come to my house and hear it with me <laughs> if you happen to be in Japan. Just give me a give me an email. <laughs> yeah, I like this Huff piece. It was really interesting and playful. I just thought it was really fun to listen to. It must have been fun to perform and compose as well. And I thought he really captured that French character uh, in all of the different movements. I didn't know the association, so it'll be interesting if you solve the puzzle correctly or not. Hopefully, get some. I don't uh, know. Answer that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I'm using some Huff's hints, though. I'm not really going yeah. only by my ears. So, the due to the, even though I've heard this so many times now, it's still pretty challenging. It is. I, I haven't yeah. worked it out yet either, but I do understand that opening chord kind yeah. of now. I kind of listening to that. I guess what makes it interesting is there's mm-hmm. so many things happening. And there's sort of this ominous creeping up on you with all <laughs> the things that are going on that uh, it makes you feel like you have to listen closely or else something might happen to you. <laughs> so I kind of enjoy that kind of atmosphere to it. And the Ravel, I think, is just really nice. It's uh, exciting and dreamy in the compositions, but the performance is really impressive, enjoyable, and you've got this great sound on this disc. You know, Hyperion usually has really good sound quality on all their recordings, but it generally ranges from very good to amazing. And I think this one's like uh, close to amazing, if not amazing. So we'll see. So um, excellent recording. And then finally we get to our third classical album and this is a contemporary composer. I like to get people listening to contemporary music because I think classical music is still alive and well, although it's not as vibrant as it was in say the 18th and 19th centuries or the beginning of the 20th century for that matter. Anyway, this is um, the uh, Swedish composer, Niklas Sivlov. Sivlov, I think would be the Swedish way to say it. I guess we'd just say Sivlov. Um, he was born in 1968 in Sweden, so he's younger than me, but older than you. Yeah. Right he's kind of in between the, us. These are his symphonies one and five, and this is pronounced by the Malmö Opera Orchestra, conducted by Joachim Gustafsson, and this is on the Naxos label. We start with um, Siv Love's uh, Symphony Number no. One, subtitled the Nordico. I just wonder about that. Why they yeah. use an Italian word for these <laughs> Swedish writing about something Swedish? Maybe it just sounds more musical. I don't know. This piece was composed in 2013, and it was written after the birth of his son that year. Uh, the title is a reflection of Siv Love's upbringing in the north of Sweden. Now, if you think about Sweden, actually, was it the, the filmmaker Ingmar Bergman lived on an island in the north of Sweden? Like most, most Swedes are in the south. They're in Stockholm. But the north is very cold and yeah. icy. And we should keep that in mind when we're hearing these works. Because I think there's a lot of the um, 
sort of Sibelian yep. landscape inspired sort of um, textures in this music. So you might want to look at some pictures of Northern Sweden on the internet. You can do that now, which is kind of nice. You don't have to yeah. imagine that. Okay, so we said it's a reflection of Sivlov's upbringing in the north of Sweden and of at least some of his strongest influences, most notably of Sibelius. Oh, yes, I will mention that when that comes <laughs> up. There are moments that sound very Sibelian in this um, symphony. It's a three-movement work. And movement one, the movements are just labeled movement one, movement two, movement three. There's no description of them. So movement one starts, um, he describes it as bright. And I would say it starts off with a huge flash of bright orchestration. So I kind of think of the sun on this icy landscape where it's just really almost blindingly bright because the <laughs> sunlight is reflecting off all of the ice and snow. The recorded sound is thin in the high end here, but actually my ear adjusted to this and it sounded fuller later on. It, it could be the orchestra here too. But the bass end registers fully. So orchestral detail though is very clear. Kind of like on an icy, cold, clear day where you can just kind of see everything in great detail because of the light. And that's in line with the title, I would say. Um, there are quick changes of texture throughout its first minute. In fact, this is going to be, if we're listening to this work, you should know right away, Steve Love seems to compose in sections. And these sections don't repeat. He kind of yeah. like... It's almost like you're watching a slideshow, and yep. then you see the next slide, and then you see the next slide. And, you know, they're, they're not really... Well, the slides aren't related. They're related in that they're all about the same thing. Your vacation in, you know, uh, Bermuda or something. <laughs> but, um, you know, but otherwise, they're just pictures of what happened that day. And I get the impression that uh, the symphony is sort of written in that style. So we're not going to hear any, like, returning themes or things like that. Well, maybe we are, and I just had, didn't catch mm -hmm. them because I'm hearing this for the first time. But we'll see. Idea after idea just kind of barges in and is being expressed. And I want to say also, it's all pleasing to the ear. And it's very big. And uh, it's this is not shy music at all. The harmony is traditional. There's a lot of detail to keep the ear busy with. The music slows at about the 2 minute and 10 second mark. This section is melted into the slower theme that begins in earnest at 2 minutes and 30 seconds is played mostly by cellos. And is in contrast to what we've heard up to now. And I thought uh, that my uh, co-host Russ over here would be appreciating the very cool brass harmony in the third minute of this work. Indeed. Yeah, at four minutes and 20 seconds, uh, Chai, I actually thought of you when I was thinking, listening <laughs> to this. I was like, oh, Russ would probably like this part. At four minutes and 20 seconds, chiming percussion introduces a more percussive section, which is taken over by quick short string lines at about four minutes and 50 seconds. We hear chirping winds at 5 minutes and 20 seconds recalling birds. Sections continue to change rapidly and tension builds up with the material in the 6th minute. The tension is quickly dismissed in the 7th minute where we hear frozen string lines and chiming ice-like percussion. The whole movement conjures up an icy crystal clear landscape with living organisms in it. It's not a still life. There's movement like in each of these sections. At 8 minutes and 40 seconds, we get a quick thaw and rushing Sibelius-like lines. In the ninth minute, there's a kind of trudging rhythm, which again is interrupted by slower, slightly frozen themes. The movement just ends unexpectedly with a losing of energy at the end, or I should say dissipation of energy. This movement passes by like a slideshow, as I said. Keep your ears on the material or you'll miss a scene. A lot of them are quick. I want to say something else about this. 
in the traditional symphony, like from the um, classical and romantic eras, the 18th and 19th centuries, there's this whole idea of the um, the arc or the through line. And like that, the whole thing is, you, you hear this even in early 20th century symphonies, like in Sibelius, it gives them this big, mighty kind of quality. Like they makes them mm. sound rock-like, like they're indestructible. I'm not getting a sense of that here. I don't think he's composing to that um, norm or that mm. idea simply because themes don't really connect. They sort of, it's right. like I said, it, it kind of feels to me like a slideshow, but he gets a fair amount of power out of the orchestra. So if you're looking for that, I mean, I think you'll like this, but it's not going to be as deeply satisfying yeah. as say like a Sibelius symphony or something like that. Okay. Movement two, the sky darkens according to Steve Love. And he originally titled this movement Ode to Edvard Munch. Now, you might remember, if you know your um, humanities, Edvard Munch was the painter of the painting The Scream, which has become, yeah, the guy with his hands <laughs> on his cheeks on the bridge screaming that we see everywhere now because it evokes modern society yeah. <laughs> because that's what our lives are like now. Anyway, the climax of the movement is an empty fermata bar marked silent scream. So it's like, I guess it's a rest with a fermata over it. And that's supposed to be a silent scream. I mean, we're not going to hear that. Okay, so this sounds a bit ominous in the beginning with its sustained legato harmony. The orchestration is thick and heavy on strings. I like the use of a rumbling, awakening brass in the first minute, creating a sort of counter harmony to the slowly shifting string harmony. Uh, again, details emerge and quickly disappear. There's a buildup of tension and volume up to the fourth minute. And the surge of tension ends with loud chimes again. By the way, the, the way he uses the chimes, it does sound kind of icy. It kind of gives mm. you this cold landscape kind of um, image when you hear them. And he uses them quite a lot. We hear long-held brass lines underpinned by quiet, agitated strings or agitated strings. At the 5 minute 11 second mark, there's a trumpet call over pizzicato bass, followed by circling wind figures that morph into and out of a Sibelius-like nature scene a piano appears along with the chiming percussion at six minutes and 30 seconds and at this point i should remark Siv love himself is a pianist so he's i mm. guess he's putting himself in the landscape here at seven minutes and 44 seconds there's a pause and we hear the first really harsh harmony of the symphony a loud shriek from the orchestra mostly strings is this moment the scream of edvard Munch? Mm. could be some quieter material follows, but by 9 minutes and 30 seconds, we hear a combined trudging rhythm with some fanfares played with harsh harmony. Now, when I say a trudging rhythm, I mean the kind of way you would walk through deep snow, mm. the rhythm that would make. There's a bit of warmth in the strings at 11 minutes and 20 seconds as the movement heads for its ending. It quietens, ending with reedy woodwind trills and two chimes, then the silence. And if he hadn't told me about it, um, I wouldn't know it was there. Because I guess you have to be at yeah. the uh, see a live performance to know about that. All right, the third movement and final movement. Um, the composer originally titled this movement "Fire Dance of the Witches." Oh, uh, so it's supposed to be sort of a. It's it's got lots of metrical complexities, but although the time signature is three four all the way through. And Sivlov says that the notes. He says that a syncopated idea near the beginning has its origins in Miles Davis of all people. <laughs> I couldn't identify that. I don't know. 
Um, mm. You can also hear traces of Berlioz and Stravinsky. Yes, of course, Berlioz, the fifth movement of his um, You Dream of a Witch's Sabbath from his Symphonie Fantastique is mm. definitely an influence on this. So when this starts, there's a burlesque comical feel to the opening of the movement. It doesn't really feel kind of creepy or anything like that. It's There's something funny about it. It feels to me more circusy than anything witchy at the beginning. By the time we're in the first minute, it has taken on a more sinister feel, and tension builds in the second minute with a slow crescendo and winding string figures. There's an interesting theme at the end of the second minute with brass, wind, and metallic percussion. Stravinskyan influences are heard in the third minute. The rhythmic figure, if not the harmony, reminding me of the Rite of Spring at 3 minutes and 10 seconds. So he did mention there's a Stravinsky um, hmm. influence to this, and I'm hearing it here at 3 minutes and 10 seconds, if you know your Rite of Spring. There's a nice ear candy in the bending timpani hits at the end of the third minute. I like that sound a lot. I'd like to hear it more. I'd like it to be my alarm clock, in fact. <laughs> you know, somebody just bends up this timpani hit or something. I think I'd have a good day after that. A new string idea comes in at uh, 4 minutes and 45 seconds. I have to say, Sivilov has lots of ideas. He's not necessarily weaving them all together, but he's kind of presenting them all in these works. They just keep being churned out. I feel like I'm in good hands as far as material goes. Rumbling timpani and harmonic stabs end a section 5 minutes and 30 seconds, after which we begin another set of snapshots that slowly build up in volume. Stravinsky's rhythmic sense is planted all over this movement, though it's not as aggressive when Sivlov uses it. There are all sorts of subtle changes of rhythm along with the material as the piece heads towards its end. A long crescendo and an accompanying string rhythm accompanying huge brass chords lead to the controlled chaos of the final minute. The piece ends with a harmonized two-note figure that recalls the sudden end of the Rite of Spring. And I'd say the orchestration in this symphony is exhilarating, and the playing of the Malmö Opera Orchestra does the music justice, making it flow naturally without any of the careful approach we often get from orchestras in new music. Though it also doesn't throw caution to the wind. It sort of um, gives like a, a, a good and yeah. fairly exciting um, performance. It's enjoyable, eminently listenable. Um, this orchestra isn't the kind of orchestra, like if you ever hear like, Wagner brass, how like smooth and buttery those harmonies sound. Uh, that's not the case here, but I do like the kind of rough brass chord sound that they get in these works. It kind of makes it feel more kind of mm. like, you know, alive to me, I guess. I'm not really sure that Steve Love is intending that sound anyway, but hard to say. Okay. Tracks four through five is a two movement work, Symphony Number no. Five. This was written only three years ago in 2020. Or really, less than three years ago, I would guess. This is subtitled uh, Concerto for Orchestra. Hmm, that's pretty modest. Hmm. And uh, dedicated to the composer's introverted and reflective mother. I didn't find this to be a terribly introverted (laughs) symphony, though. (laughs) But that's what he says. Anyway, Sivlov strove for a more simple and direct language in the symphony after the densely contrapuntal fourth symphony, which I haven't heard and we're not hearing on this album. Anyway, movement one is a set of variations in which the divisions are quite loose and not always easy to discern. The theme is first heard in the violins at the beginning of the work, and it's pretty short. So we're going to hear it a lot and in a lot of different kind of guises. Um, It's pretty easy to follow. It just sort of stops and goes on to the next sort of set of uh, the next variation. 
um, without any space. So this starts with smooth brass chords, sounding good, but not quite buttery as in Wagner scores, as I've mentioned. We hear the theme of the strings at 28 seconds, and to be honest, it's a hard theme to hold onto as it's not very melodic, but it sounds like it's the kind of line that'll give the composer a lot of space to create variations with, which in fact it does. The opening of the piece is spacious and atmospheric, evoking a wide landscape. Uh, just before the minute and 30 second mark, the volume turns up and we have our first variations. At two minutes is probably the second one. They seem to be just coming every 30 seconds or so. With creeping quarter tones in the bass and brass carrying the thematic material. At two minutes, 30 seconds, the thematic material changes again. These variations change very suddenly so that as in the first symphony, if you blink or drift off in your mind, you'll miss it. There's a more dramatic, anxious variation at about 3 minutes and 22 seconds. This one gets pretty wild. Then a piano signals a new variation at 4 minutes and 11 seconds. At 5 minutes and 11 seconds, there's a climbing variation, which dissipates and leads to a quieter texture at 5 minutes and 33 seconds, with the theme of the background brass there. Another comes around uh, the 5, five minutes and 50 second mark. Uh, there's a pause at 6 minutes and 37 seconds, which really draws your attention, uh, followed by a variation led by background brass with upfront woodwinds accompanying. Another sudden change to a quicker tempo at 7 minutes and 11 seconds. At 7.45, there's a march type of theme played in the brass, followed by other stiffer figures. Then in the 8th minute, the flow resumes. At 8 minutes and 39 seconds, there's a solo violin leading the variation Another brief pause at 9 minutes and 24 seconds, followed by a more agitated variation with winds leading. At 10.45, loud tippity rolls accompany an agitated violin section. In the 11th minute, the material starts roiling and calms down for warm string chords and a brief brass fanfare at 11 minutes and 45 seconds. The 12th minute consists of warm strings playing the theme slowly and in a romantic manner. And the movement ends on what sounds like it's going to be a cadence, but winds up with an extra note or two in the penultimate chord, which leads to an inconclusive ending chord. One thing I notice about this composer, and especially here, he'll tend to build up tension and then just kind of, it dissipates out. Like he doesn't really resolve it. He just kind of lets it mm. sit there. And that happens a lot in this movement. Anyway, the final movement two Sivlov says the thematic material has its origins in a jazz ballad that he himself composed about one of his cats named Ringo, who had a way of sneaking around so that you couldn't hear him. The music mostly remains like Ringo, quiet and restrained, and takes all its elements from its blues-inflected source. I have to say, I don't agree with that <laughs> statement at all. I don't know what he's talking about. We'll talk about that. We'll get into that a little bit. As in Debussy's Preludes, but if anyone's ever played the Debussy Preludes on the piano, you know that um, in the score, you don't know what the title is until the very end. He writes it under the last notes. And that happens in this, uh, this movement too. The title of the movement appears at the end of the score, under the final bar, and it's Silent Tail, T-A-I-L, hmm. after his cat. Now that whole description said nothing to me because I had a totally <laughs> different interpretation yeah. of this movement. I couldn't hear this at all. Anyway, this starts with um, break of day warmth in the orchestra, sort of like a sunrise kind of quality. You think of yourself waking up and just becoming slowly aware of the things around you, that kind of sound. It plays gently, hazy, long-held chords. The music slowly builds up tension and a bit of volume, but never gets to forte. 
It attenuates back into its opening volume and remains atmospheric. Yeah, this is a Sivalov technique. He likes to um, not resolve tension. <laughs> I'll just leave it where it is. At 2 minutes and 35 seconds, there's some activity in the strings. By 3 minutes and 18 seconds, the strings are alone in their high range. And right here I mentioned in my notes, I'm not getting anything cat-like from this movement. <laughs> it sounds wide landscape-y to me. Again, like more Sibelian sort of, if you think of his um, symphonies. At the four-minute mark, there's a slow fanfare-type theme in the brass and strings. An immediate pianissimo follows at four minutes and 40 seconds or so. There's a trudging rhythm through the fifth minute, shimmering, quiet strings. Then at about the six-minute and 20-second mark, a more carnivalesque rhythm bursts from the orchestra. There's a sudden change at around the seven-minute and 39-second mark to stillness. Then at 7 minutes and 50 seconds again to a more agitated set of patterns. And I'd agree the language is fairly simple, but I only hear passages of introspection, let's say. Uh, there are a lot of contrasting agitated sections as well. In the 8th minute, we hear an appealing brass fanfare building up to mass chords, then pizzicato-driven material in the ninth minute. The piece winds down with sustained atmospheric chords in the 11th minute, reaching a quiet final resolving chord. Okay, so that's the end of the album. I have to say, I love a good Nordic symphony. And Steve Love is clearly in the tradition of Sibelius. This seems to be a big influence on him. Uh, he makes big sweeping statements using the full color of the orchestra. All of the movements in these symphonies are long-breathed, or long-breathed, I guess, with lots of ideas popping in and out without warning. The Malmeux Opera Orchestra under... Joachim Gustafsson's baton approaches the music naturally without any overly metrical approach to the rhythm. The works breathe well and are most... That's what I mean by that. By no, mm. There's a metrical approach, obviously. But the, what I mean is the works breathe well. They have like a natural rhythm to them and are, are most interesting for their orchestration and tone colors, um, which are really what we enjoy most in Nordic symphonies anyway, right? Okay, so mm -hmm. th these don't really have the power of a Sibelius symphony. It doesn't really feel like Sivlov is composing with a through line, or at least it's not coming across to me. But nevertheless, these are really like a sort of a, a nice sound bath for the ears. Yeah. There's a lot of good orchestration in here. Yeah, we like our Nordic symphonies, and these are certainly Nordic in character. You can sense the Sibelius influence. But like you say, you're not left with a lot of melodic themes or recurring ideas However, they're interesting for the full use of the orchestral colors, especially lots of big brass, which mm. I always enjoy. And that's this, yeah, you're gonna hear that in a yeah the effect Nordic of symphony of brass changing scenes and episodes. Mm. You're getting these mm. visual kind of representations that come through the sound, and but it's changing a lot. <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. you're going he's got to a lot a of ideas. Place. I'll give yeah. him that. Yeah, he's got a lot of sort of. Yeah, and the other thing I enjoyed a lot were the exciting rhythmic passages, really good use of percussion along with the brass, and so that always makes things very exciting. And you know, there's a lot of other little things in there. There's a one bassoon passage that I really liked, and so he seems to pick out little smaller colors too. So you've got a lot of contrast, interesting stuff. I want to hear the rest of these symphonies now. Yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing, especially the fourth. He, he says it's very contrapuntal. I'd love to hear mm. that one. Yeah, I'll look into it, see if they're, uh, if he's released anything check in the out. past. I'm going to check it out. All right, it's jazz time then. Yay. And... I love jazz. <laughs> I'm, glad. <laughs> I'm glad we're here. Yeah, I'm glad I we're love here. classical music too, though. 
Yeah. And well, last week we sort of stayed in the U.S. for some uh, big name players, and uh, yeah. we're going to do a little traveling tonight. And the common theme is the drums. We've got all drum leaders on these recordings. Hey, we're going to go back to the country of your forefathers again. Mike. Oh yeah, we're going to start out there in Italy tonight with a drummer, Giovanni Scasciamacchia. Yeah, yeah, and well, that's some name. Yeah, Giovanni. <laughs> I was going to tell you yeah. that. And uh, this is his new recording called Constant. Came out January 11th. It's a self-released recording from a self-taught player from his bio. Uh, he's a drummer and composer. He was born in Bernalda, 1977. And he's played a lot around Italy, jazz clubs and festivals, also abroad. And he played a tour in Japan in 2019. Oh. Would have been nice to have uh, been able to catch him. Sorry, I'm sorry you missed that. Yeah, a lot of other uh, big yeah. name Italian musicians that he lists playing with. The two that stuck out to me, of course, Fabrizio Bosso, one of our mm. favorite. We love him. Yeah, yeah, one of the greatest trumpet players out there. And uh, sax player Max Ionata, uh, who I came to know because I got a lot of his recordings from our friend in Milan, Nathan. Mm. And Nathan. So, hey, yeah. what's up, Nathan? Hey, Nathan. We know you're listening. I just want to say, we I, I check our kind of like, sort of demographics for the podcast and in italy every week we have only one listener i think we know who <laughs> it is Nathan, yeah it's probably him yeah anyway maybe we'll have some more uh this week it usually spikes up when we do some uh italian mm. musicians anyway here we are rounding out the rest of the musicians here giovanni's on drums andrea pozza on piano giuseppe bassi on bass it's a good bass name and yeah. on a few tracks here, more than a few, actually, on tenor sax, we've got Gianfranco Manzella. Now, I'm going to assume, since he's a composer, that these are all original compositions. I did write to him, but I didn't hear back uh, this week, so maybe we'll find out uh, after the episode. Anyway, this first one, you were saying it looks, if we read it in English, it would be pace, but you could you said it could be pace. It could be pace, yeah, the Italian word for peace. I'm not sure. Right. I'm going to guess pace though because uh, of the speed that's played yeah. at it doesn't sound like a peaceful uh, movement so I'm maybe. not really sure though maybe he'll write to us and tell us yeah maybe we'll find out anyway this is a happy sounding swinging tune it's got an 8 bar intro of some syncopated chords the melody section is 48 bars I guess it's 24 bars times 2 but they bring back some of those syncopated chords from the intro into the second half and at the end for a nice touch and Skashimakia has the swing feeling going on nicely with light driving cymbals. The solos kick off with Basi on bass with some speedy finger work and melodic ideas for a couple rounds. He continues on walking for another 24 bars for Skashimakia to get busy on the drums. And then the drums carry on completely solo for a round. Skashimakia mixes it up fast and tight. Nice drumming here. Pozza gets a piano solo next. Clear articulation on swinging and forward pushing lines. And they close it out with another run of the melody and an outro like the intro to finish it off. So it's a brisk and happy beginning to the recording. Track two is called Noemi. It's a pretty solo rubato piano opening to this ballad. Bass and drums join in. 
and Skashamakia has soft brushes marking out the 6-8 rhythm of this tune. It seems to be a 30-measure melody, and Polza has a nice touch with ringing notes here. There's some tasty bass work underneath by Basi with pulsing rhythms and a few cool glisses that stand out. Polza continues on soloing after the melody, melodic, but with a nice mix of rhythmic figures in his lines. And Basi gets a melodic and ringing bass solo with a soft touch. They take it around the melody with a little slowdown for some final pretty piano at the ending. Do you think that uh, title is like his uh, Japanese girlfriend, Noemi? I don't know. Is that a Japanese name? This could be. Yeah. Could be. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, we will find out. Because some yeah. of the other uh, titles are, uh, well, as we go on. We'll get we'll there. See, yeah. <laughs> okay, some uh, good titles here. Track three, Constant. And it's another 6-8 tune. The nice bounce that gets good interplay with bass rhythms and Skasimakia's cymbals under the piano melody. It's a 24 bar ABB construction with a minor start in the A section and then a switch to major for the B. A minor chord then gets Skashimakia started on a drum solo next. I like his relaxed feel while mixing up a lot of tricky ideas around the kit in the 6-8 meter. Bossy follows on bass, clear biting articulation and some cool triplet ideas, still very melodic in his lines. Pozza gets a piano solo too, nice snappy runs and rhythmic figures with soft punchy left hand chords. They take it around the melody again, adding a last minor section at the end with some ringing piano and a final bendy bass note. Track four, Begin. And Skashimakia <laughs> begins the begin with an intro of toms. It's a relaxed and easy tempo and feel. Polza paints the breezy melody with a light touch, leaving lots of space. It's a 20-measure melody, and they go around it twice. Polza continues on soloing, relaxed and tasty flowing lines with a delicate rhythmic energy. Basi gets another melodic and snappy bass solo, getting up higher at the end. Under all this, Skashimakia is doing subtle and soft drum kit work. They take it around the melody a couple more times and Skashimakia takes it out with some final toms and a soft cymbal. Track five, five fingers. And those five fingers are for five, four time signature. It's a oh, fun man. and unique one. Uh, it's an AABA form with the bass getting a cool bluesy melody in the A sections over cool rhythmic clicking groove in Skashimakia's drums. The B section swings more with a ride cymbal and the piano taking over. Uh, Pozza solos first, swinging hard and bluesy with a fun bounce in 5-4. Mbassi has some cool repeated note ideas and bouncy rhythms too in his bass solo. Pozza and Skashimakia take it around to trade some fours for soloing, and they take it around the melody again with a few repeats of the final phrase to a very cool little bass cadenza from Bassi. He digs really low and then slides it up for a dramatic ending. Nice tune. Hmm. Well, we had a begin, so track six. Bossa Nova. That's the yeah. name. It has named. It's a Bossa Nova uh, with the addition <laughs> here of Gianfranco Manzella on tenor sax. Uh, he blows the breezy 24-bar melody over Skashimakia's clicky groove and snappy bass from Bassi. Pozza solos first with lots of chasing connected lines, and Manzella follows. He's got really smooth articulation, but a big, full, and gruff tone. Nice melodic and flowing lines on the sax. He ties it right back into another round of the melody, and it closes out with some chimey piano over heartbeat bass pulses. It's the shortest track on the album at only four and a half minutes. You know, the the title, Bossa Nova Begin. Yeah. Remember in the 1980s where they had those, um, you know, no frills cans, like it would just say soup on it yeah. or something? <laughs> yeah. It kind of reminds well, me of that. <laughs> I guess, you know, if you write an original tune, um, 
you know, you could just call it what it is, uh, rhythmically, especially oh, if you're nice. a drummer, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like calling your dog dog or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Track seven, Nonini. Yeah. Manzella stays on for this one, but Pozza gets it started with the piano intro. It's a waltzing theme, and Manzella blows the melody, Pozza adding a harmonized line in spots. And Manzella continues on with the solo, sounding relaxed even on speedier lines. Skashimakia's ride cymbals really cut through, driving it along. Pozza gets a solo too, with some interesting rhythmic phrases. They finish it up with another run through the melody and some final soft sax phrases from Manzella. And. <laughs> Track eight. Cha <laughs> cha cha. Here we go. Skashimaki yeah. gets the cha 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 dance going with a four bar drum intro. Menzella takes the 28 bar melody on tenor and continues on into a solo with a lot of smooth double time phrases. Polta follows on piano with a solo that's speedy but has really great phrasing. Masi gets a bass solo too, mixing up the rhythmic figures with appealing melodic ideas. Sax and piano trade fours with Skashimakia to get some tasty drumming spots in. And he plays inventive rhythmic figures, and the drums sound full and textured even when they're soft. And they cha-cha-cha once more around to take it out. Indeed. Track 9, Serena. This one features some meter change-ups. Manzella comes right in on the melody, which is a 32 bar form, alternating eight bar sections of 6-8 time and 4-4 time. Oh, okay. Mm. I had that. I had the 4-4 part, but I didn't really catch the change. Mm. I was like, okay. There's nice tight cymbal work on the 6-8 parts by Sklashomachia. Uh, Manzella continues on with the solo, fluid and full-bodied in tone, floating over the meter changes. Pozza has a really flowing solo with a smooth touch and good rhythmic feel. They take it through the melody sections again and continue on a soft vamp in 4-4 for some final fluffy improvisations from Manzella and some final fun pitch play on sax there too. Track 10, Dicembre. This one's a minor tune with a Latin beat in a 7-beat meter, either 7-4 or 7-8. The trio gives a 4-measure intro, and Menzella takes the 32-bar melody. Again, nice light cymbal work from Skashamakia and tasty fills. Bossi's up for a solo first here with melodic and speedy lines. Menzella follows with a solo of nicely phrased lines over the unusual meter. Pozza has another solo with good flow and rhythms. Then Skashamakia has a solo focusing on interesting tom work with controlled dynamics. They take it around the melody again with a few final phrase repeats to end it. And we're going to close out the recording with a track called End Year. It's a Latin beat tune with a kind of bossa-like beat to it, just the trio on this tune. They give it an eight-bar intro, already some tasty cymbals from Skashamakia from the start. Pozza takes the minor melody that has some Kenny Durham blue bossa melody-like uh, phrases to it, if you know that tune. Uh, it's 24 bars, and I like how the rhythmic push lets up in the last four measures of the melody. They go around it twice, Pozza solos first, fleet and smooth double time lines with a nice touch over the Latin beat. At about 3 minutes and 15 seconds, he has a great descending rhythmic figure that continues on into some extended lines and softens to finish it up. Really nice. Bossy gets a bass solo next, getting some bluesy ideas out near the start and coming back to them later on. And Pozza and Skashamakia trade fours for a round, finishing up with a final soft drum section into a final run of the melody. So we got straight ahead jazz here. 
with fine musicianship from these Italian players. All original tunes, it seems, covering a variety of rhythmic feels and some unique meters. Scashamaki is a subtle drummer rather than a show-off player, but he draws you in with his intricate rhythmic ideas and attention to the tone of his drums. I enjoyed Pozza's sense of touch and flowing solo lines on the piano, and Bassi's very melodic bass soloist. Menzo's tenor sax on six of the 11 tunes is a good addition with his big sound and smooth phrasing. Yeah, very well done and enjoyable jazz here. Yeah, I really feel like um, in Italy, the, the real gift that Italians you know bring to music is their sense of melody. And mm. uh, that's really especially true in jazz. You know, it, right. they, they get these really gorgeous melodic lines and playing and even in their solos. So what stood out for me on this album, you know, there was beautiful harmony, beautiful tone of all the musicians, stylish playing of the pianist, but especially for me, the, the bassist's melodic solos. And you usually don't hear yeah. melodic bass solos, and this really stood out for me. He has an excellent sense of melodic phrasing, and that was great to hear. And Skashamakia himself has a light touch and an appealing kind of approach. Uh, he and the rest of his band are highly attuned to melody. The, the melodic players are attuned to the melody hmm. and other phrases. Very refreshing to hear. I'm always happy to hear melody in music. It almost disappeared in a lot of 20th century music, but um, Italians bringing it back to jazz. I enjoyed the saxophone playing in the second half of the album because the first half is all the, I guess it's a trio. Yeah. And then suddenly the saxophone player comes in with the last half of the album. I thought that was really interesting that he was suddenly there on all the tracks. Mm. He has a gift for seamlessly moving from theme to solo or back as heard on Cha 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 and Bossa Nova. One gets a sense of conversations without words through the careful phrasing used by all players. And they have a great sense of melody, all of them. A satisfying listen, great sense of musicality. Yeah, this is a record that I kind of want. Now, I, I was actually, whenever I hear an album that I really like, I'm always looking for, well, let me see if there's a CD. And in this case, there's not. So I want to just say uh, to um, Giovanni, hey, put this out on a CD for me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> And come back to right, Japan. This is something I want to keep. It's really good. And come back to Japan. We'll uh, we'll go out for some uh, yakitori. Yeah, <laughs> we have a, we know a good place. Indeed, we know several good places. Really. Yeah. All right, we're going to uh, jump from Italy over to the UK for another drummer, Gaz Hughes, and his recording Bebopticle Illusion. This Great came title. Out, yeah, February third. Yeah. Uh, 2019, he was voted fifth place in the British Jazz Awards. And in 2020, he released his debut album as a leader, Plays Art Blakey. In 2022, he released a trio album, Bebopperation. <laughs> <And so, laughs> he's, got, he's got some good... Yeah, uh, we've got Beboptical Illusion. You're going to run out of Bebop titles. There. I suggest Beboptometry <laughs> for the next one. That's good. Uh, before okay. you run out. Yeah. We're, we're running out that. of titles for our uh, French-themed uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, podcast, yeah, but uh, right. we got one more left, and then after that, I think I'm going to hang them up. But Right. So this is we'll his see. third release here as a leader. What's, I guess, unique about this one is he's uh, going forward with mostly original compositions as well. So he's a drummer-composer uh, himself. So we've got Hughes on drums and most of the compositions. Andrzej Baranek on piano. And Ed Harrison on double bass. And we're going to start out with the title track, Beep Optical Illusion. It's a fun one to get started with a bouncy high piano melody line mixed with solid left handle piano chords and bass hits. Sounds like AABA 32 bar rhythm changes here. 
and Hughes has tight cymbals going right away. The B section has bouncy chords, an acute little left-hand piano bass figure, and Baronek carries on into a solo, and we're going to be impressed by him a lot on this recording. Uh, really swinging melodies and punchy chords. I like his sudden register switches and spots with new phrases and stream of melodic ideas. Harrison follows with a bass solo with a good melodic arc and big bounce, and Baronek trades off fours with Hughes for a go-around. Nice tight snare work and tom hits. They take it around the happy melody once more to finish it up. Hughes mixing it up with tasty fills and hits right to the end. Track two, Concord. And a dazzling solo piano opening from Baronek here. Rolling notes, gospely feel, and speedy runs. Wow. After a hold, he gets the rhythm going with some bouncy left-hand intervals. Bass and drums join in on the groove, and Baronek shows off his stuff with right-hand snappy lines and chords over the great groove for a couple runs around the 24-bar melody. Continues on for a bluesy and bouncy solo. Harrison has a great snappy bass going on synced with Hughes' chugging drums, and Hughes has a lot of explosive hits and fills cheering on Baronek's gospel jamming. Uh, they settle it down for some vamping for Hughes to get the drums simmering working around the kit, and they take it through the melody again without letting up on the energy. Now we've got a couple of uh, female name titles. We're going to start with Edith for track three. Harrison gets a hypnotic ostinato going over a light even beat from Hughes for eight bars. Baronek joins in with the minor melody of sparse chords and phrases, joining in the ostinato a bit on the way too. I'm not sure of the structure here really, uh, but the section seems to be 34 bars long. Harrison is up for a bass solo first and his tone really rings out. He keeps it relaxed and rhythmic with clear attack and Bernick plays next with a solo of snappy rhythmic phrases, cool runs of figures building on each other, and chiming chords. They take it around the melody section again to end it up. Track four is Lori. It's a busy Latin feel 6-8 tune. Uh, another ostinato to start out in both the bass and piano left hand. Bernick really branches out in the fifth bar with syncopated chords working into the main section. The melody is mostly short rhythmic repeated phrases with a few Spanish tinges getting into the hypnotic groove, uh, working up the intensity until it comes down for a, a trickling piano run going way up high, and Baronek starts improvising way up there and then works into some Cuban rhythm ideas. Uh, then he gets more explorative harmonically with chords and right-hand lines, staying really locked into the groove. Hughes really has the beat cranked up. It comes down soft for a start of a Harrison bass solo, and he keeps it rhythmic and softly mysterious, working up into the upper register with some repeated notes. He gets some percussive hand slapping on the bass too, and Hughes has broken the beat to make swells around him and get into soft hi-hat and textured backing. Harrison gets the ostinato figure reintroduced softly, and Marinek picks up on it, bringing in another round of the tune. He works up into some big chiming chords, and then they bring it down for another build-up through the melody figures to the end. And we're going to get the longest track, the only non-original on here, that's Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady. And a really classy solo piano start to this one, with rippling waves of notes from Baronek. It ebbs and flows with ideas around the melody. After about a minute and 40 seconds, Baronek gets a steady tempo going with rhythmic chords, and Hughes and Harrison join in shortly after with tight drum brushing and ringing bass. Baronek keeps it swinging along with light right-hand lines, choppy left-hand chords, and some Ellington-esque runs 
added in spots. Uh, a nice combination of drive and classy touch here. Harrison gets a bass solo around six minutes in, relaxed phrasing and a happy bounce. I like how Baronek responds to him rhythmically. Back to some more magical piano melody and runs. After eight minutes, drums and bass start to pull back and leave Baronek alone for some final dazzling solo piano to finish it up. Yeah, I wanted to, at this point, I noticed that the, the pianist has these really great chord voicings. I was really enjoying yeah. listening to him, you know, and this, this goes on through the rest of the album, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. He's really uh, catches your ear with lots of interesting stuff. Track six is Sticks and Stones. Uh, Hughes gets it going with an eight-bar solo drum intro, and then it's off swinging with a beboppy melody from Baranek. And it sounds like what we've got here are Charlie Parker's confirmation chord changes. Uh, the B section has a little spot for a drum break. Baranek continues on into a solo. Some really great two-handed synced boppy lines in this one. Keep your left ear listening to Hughes's accents and little fills while you enjoy it. Uh, Harrison gets a really melodic bass solo, and then Baranek takes a round of trading fours into another round of the melody with a final long fall on piano for a fun finish. Track seven, The Verdict. A swinging groove and ominous low open interval piano chords start this one out for a 16 bar intro. The melody is a weaving minor modal line matching the mood. It's an AAB 24 bar form and they vamp on the chord idea for four bars before going around again. It's got a real Horace Silver kind of atmosphere to it. Baranek starts a solo with a lot of rhythmic fun, and Harrison switches up from the snappy syncopated bass he's been doing to a walk, and things get chugging along with Hughes' driving beat. This is really great, tight, high-energy playing by the trio here, with Hughes making great hits and fills behind Baranek's solo ideas. They bring it down softer for a Harrison bass solo that keeps the energy pushing forward, and they take another round of the melody and keep the chord vamp going for Hughes to get busy on the drums, working it hard right to the end. And the last track, To the Moon and Back. Now, this is a fun one to end up with. There's a 12-bar intro with a kind of light gospely beat and an ostinato bass and piano figure. It has a cute melody line that gets a little calypso-like in the ninth measure, and it's got a bluesiness to it as well, and basically follows a 12-bar blues movement, but with two extra measures before they go around it once more. Uh, Baronet gets on soloing, and they dispense with those extra measures once things get rolling along, sticking with the 12-bar blues format. Harrison gets a bouncy and bluesy bass solo. Bass and piano help get Hughes started with the first four bars of a couple rounds of soloing, and then he continues on for two more all on his own, mixing it up around a drum kit. Back to the intro idea again, but this time only for eight bars, uh, before another couple rounds of the melody, and some final improvised ideas from Baronek before pulling it back into the ostinato with the bass to end it. So it's a fun recording, a nice variety of material in Hughes's original compositions. Beboppy, Latin, gospely, a variety of grooves, good melodies, over nods to familiar uh, harmonic jazz material, an Ellington tune, and a couple of grooving jammers, and don't forget the blues. Uh, Hughes keeps it all tight, and he's fun to listen to, solid but spontaneous with cool fills and expressive solos. Baranek really shines no matter what he's playing, and his solos are creative and intense. Uh, solid rhythmic work and melodic solos from Harrison, too. The sound quality is very clear and rich, uh, but the drums are panned mostly to the left and the piano to the right, so you get a sense of them sitting in front of you uh, in order of the trio there. But I've found it to be an exciting uh, recording rooted in uh, a lot of the great jazz from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, this was quite a find for me. This is probably my 
my favorite album of all the albums we heard this week. Hmm. It has inventive melodies and rhythms. And I kind of thought the uh, the whole vibe of this was like the 60s groove-oriented jazz. I kind of yeah. got a real like 60s uh, feel from this. Mm. I liked the pianist. He was really inventive, and his long solos never overstayed their welcome. Great chord voicings, especially noticeable at the beginning of Sophisticated Lady. I like the individual approach of all these players. Uh, the bass is strong, plucking at the string, giving him a big presence when he plays. I mean, he really took yeah. over when he, he had the solos. I really, like, I really liked that a lot. And uh, he phrases musically as well, as we heard in the Skashimakia recording as well. So we have two uh, bassists who phrase really yeah, well. Yeah, very melodic, yes. Yeah, very melodic. And so his solos were really appealing. And the drum grooves, of course, give all this an extra appeal. The drummer solos busily and excitingly, and there's lots of energy from his solos, and really on the album as a whole, even in the slower tunes. This is one for the collection. I'm going to have to uh, pick this one up. Yeah. Yeah, and it is available on CD, but only on their Bandcamp site, so I'm going to have to go there. That means they're going to charge me an exorbitant shipping fee, (laughs) which drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, yep. they, on, on Bandcamp, they always give you the, uh, you know, the minimum price. They give you, oh, like, you know, 10 pounds or whatever you want to give them. Yeah, I'd give them a little more, except that they're going to charge me like a yeah. 20 pounds like shipping it, yeah. fee. So yeah. I always have to go for the, uh, the minimum yeah. price there. Bandcamp needs to get a distributor warehouse in uh, Japan so that uh, they can sort of uh, ease up on the shipping charges. Yeah, yeah well, the, the whole problem with Bandcamp is the same thing as like when you're reading things on, um, what's that site that all the news people write on now? Ah, it's not coming to mind. But you, you're just stuck with this. You have to like pay for this one thing and it just winds up being really exorbitant. Mm-hmm. Whereas like if you go to say a an online store, you can get like eight things and then you, you just get this one shipping price right. and it's usually right. a little more reasonable. So anyway... Yeah, good one to pick up. Really nice. Yeah, I definitely want this Exciting one. Though. Yeah. Drummer. Really good. Highly recommended. Oh, I remember Substack was the Substack. <laughs> okay, because right. you're gonna subscribe. You gotta subscribe to every single person you're reading. Right, it's right. Unreasonable, I think. But anyway, last week we heard uh, Kenny Barron, who's just about eighty years of age and mm. still playing uh, very impressively. And we're gonna get another uh, master jazz musician, Joe Chambers. Yeah. Also, 80 years old now. Yeah. Just great they're still around. I love this. Yeah. This is his new release, Dance Copina, on Blue Note. And Joe Chambers is a drummer, pianist, vibraphonist, and composer. He attended Philadelphia Conservatory for just one year. But then in the 1960s and 70s, uh, he played with lots of the big names of jazz. Eric Dolphy, Charles Mingus, Wayne Shorter, Chick Corea, and... His compositions were featured on uh, many of the albums that he appeared on, including with Freddie Hubbard and Bobby Hutcherson. He's released 15 albums as a band leader, and this is his third album as a leader on Blue Note. This one gets into musical connections between jazz, Latin, Brazilian, Argentinian, and African music. And this album seems to be made up of uh, two different recording sessions with a variety of players. So there's a big cast of players uh, on here. So Chambers plays drums and vibraphone on this album. We've got a few pianists. We've got uh, Rick Germanson on piano, and we've got on bass on a lot of the tracks, Mark Lewandowski, uh, an English-born bassist, uh, now working in the States. And we 
covered one of his releases before. That was back in episode 47, a Baroquean bass that was under one sky. And uh, that was a record we enjoyed a lot. Uh, let's see, go down the list. We've got Marvin Carter on alto sax on a track and also tenor sax. Emilio Valdez on percussion. Kaolien Power on alto sax, also on a couple tracks. Michael Davidson, also on vibraphone. Uh, Ira Coleman on bass. Ellie Miller Mabongo on drums. Uh, Andres Vial on piano on a couple tracks and also on bombo drum. And I'll try to point out the players on the individual tracks. So we've got a mix of material, including some of Chambers' original compositions. But we're going to start out with a Kurt Veal song, This Is New. And that's originally from the 1941 Broadway musical Lady in the Dark. It's an eight-bar intro here with loping bass lines from Lewandowski and syncopated piano chords. It's in a 6-8 feel but it changes up to 4-4 when the melody comes in. Follow Chambers' high crystal clear symbols marking out the meter here. Germanson takes the melody on piano on the 16th bar, right where you would expect you know, the resolution of the melody. The 6-8 intro figure suddenly returns for a surprise. Uh, then it gets off and running on a fast swing that's like double time to the melody section uh, for a piano solo from Germanson, with Lewandowski walking out on the bass. A great swinging from Germanson and rhythmic phrases that push ahead through his melodic ideas, fun little dissonances, trills, and some chiming chords for a climax. Chambers' ride cymbal remains high and clear, but listen to his tight snare hits and other cymbal fills as well. Lewandowski falls with a bass solo, nice melodic ideas and phrasing with tight articulation. The 6-8 section returns as the basis for a solo from Chambers, and he really mixes it up around the kit, pressurized kick drum and cymbals that surround you. They take it through the melody, as in the beginning, ending with the 6-8 section with more drum action and some final rolled out chords and lines from Germanson. Now we're going to get the dance Kobina for track two. This track is written by the pianist uh, Andres Vial. There's a lot going on in this tune, uh, polyrhythms and layers of sound. The first section is 16 bars of a subdivided three beat or fast six. There's a pulsing bass and piano line, two note sax lines uh, held out and ringing vibes. Chambers is really mixing up the subdivisions and there's some conga in there too. Then there's eight bars in a four beat meter where the vibes take the center of attention. Then another eight bars with the vibes and sax working a line together. Listen closely and here you can hear the bass in four, but the cymbals mark out a six eight beat at the same time. So you've got these polyrhythms going on. Uh, they repeat all the sections again, uh, this time piano taking over on the four-beat meter section in the middle. Davidson is up for a snappy vibe solo here, and they keep the shifting rhythm patterns going underneath. Uh, Lewandowski's bass lines are really great working with Chambers drums, and Valdez has more percussion added in as well. Uh, Vial follows with a piano solo, very nice flowing lines and phrasing over this rhythmic obstacle course. Uh, he goes around the patterns twice, and then they return to the start of the melody for another round, ending on repeats of the 16-bar first section as it fades out. Track three is a Joe Chambers original, Ruth, 
And this is a delicate ballad in 3-4 time, with Marvin Carter taking the lead on alto sax. After five measures of a slinky melody line, the sax turns to interval figures that build up the tension over rhythmically synced piano chords until the sax line starts to flow again. Chambers is painting soft textures with brushes and clicks underneath the melody with ringing bass figures from Lewandowski that work into ending ostinato figures. Uh, Germanson has a pretty and ringing piano solo, and Carter is back with another soft and more flowing melody line, and it softens over the ostinato bass figures and slows to an ending. Track 4, another Chambers original, Caravanserai which I guess were the rest stations along the Silk Road. Also a famous Santana uh, album recording. Yeah, right. I thought about that yeah, when I right. heard this. I was wondering if it was the same thing, but it's not. So we've got Germanson on piano again. Here gets things going with a rubato rolling wave of piano. There's an eight-bar intro setting the mood with Lewandowski establishing an ostinato-based figure that will be the center point of all things happening here. Chambers' busy cymbals and Valdez's hand percussion give a feeling of movement. Uh, piano chords and vibes ring out. Now, Chambers is listed as drums and vibes on this track, so I guess he's added additional tracks to do that. Uh, the melody section is 32 bars made up of repeated fast rising and falling vibe and piano lines, and then a section of rising interval figures into ringing vibes and finishing up with a couple more of the rising and falling figures. It moves from a minor modal mood to brighter major chords and then back. Germanson comes out of that with a solo, starting with rhythmic figures locked into Lewandowski's groove and continues on with snappy rhythmic ideas. We hear the rising interval section again and ringing vibes for some final piano improvisations. And then Chambers takes over on vibes. He plays really speedily, locking into the busy groove, but with melodic ideas. The rising interval section takes it to uh, brighter chords from Germanson and more rising vibes and piano lines into a slowdown and a wash of dreamy sound. Track five, we've got another Vial composition, City of Saints. And here we get uh, Kaolain Power on alto sax. And it starts with an eight-bar intro with a hypnotic ostinato 5-4 bass figure from Ira Coleman on bass this time. Uh, percussion from Mabongo and clicky drums dance on top. Power blows floating sax melody lines over a ringing vibraphone from Davidson and Vial's piano chords. You can follow the chords in sort of 8, 16, and then two more 8-bar cycles for a total of 40 bars in the melody shape. Vial rolls some modally piano figures before power returns with more sax into a solo of swelling lines. Chambers has a lot of fills on toms and cymbals underneath for a complex rhythmic mix. It's a very dreamy wash of sound. Uh, Davidson gets a vibraphone solo going without sustain for a clear attack on speedy rhythmic figures, and power returns with soft sax lines as it thins to the end over more vibraphone skittles over the ostinato. Track 6 is Gazelle Suite, another Chambers original that was originally recorded on his debut as a leader on 1973 on Muse Records. Uh, here, uh, Chambers starts it out with a snare rhythm uh, joined by other hand percussion. I have no idea <laughs> what the meter of this tune is. Uh, listen to the repeating bass and piano figures of 7 and 9 beats. Is it alternating 7 eighths and 9 eighths? 
Power plays a smooth sax line over the busy rhythmic mix with Davidson adding another rhythmic marimba line to that. Uh, the melody section ends with three measures of 6-8 feeling descending lines, and then it's into a swinging 4-4 four, four over walking bass for power to solo over a 12-bar minor blues pattern. Davidson follows up with a vibe solo, swinging with good melodies. Chambers and percussion come back with the intro drum idea for a reset this time, with some more rhythmic marimba joining in before power blows the smooth sax lines for another melody run. Things suddenly switch to deep drumming on the way of the melody. I guess that's the bombo drum with some other conga type drum mixed in. Uh, there's some high piano trickles and vibes that float on top before it ends. Track seven is uh, intermezzo. It's listed as Joe Chambers' original composition. I get the feeling this is more of a improvised, spontaneous thing. It's got a rubato, improvised interaction of Chambers' vibes, Germanson's piano, and Lewandowski's bass. It gets a little bit agitated as they go on, but ends in a mysterious minor kind of mood in less than three minutes. Track eight is a Joe Henderson tune from his 1969 recording on Milestone Records of the same name, Power to the People. There's a 16-bar intro with a bass ostinato from Lewandowski and piano chords and fills from Germanson. Chambers' cymbals dance on top with extra percussion from Valdez for a busy Latin groove. Uh, Marvin Carter takes the melody on tenor sax here with vibes and piano doubling some lines. The presto notes because I don't have the uh, CD myself yet, uh, say Chambers is on vibes here as well, so I guess that's another overdub track. Uh, the B section of the melody has a contrasting halftime feel uh, before returning to the A section. Carter continues on soloing, starting with some long minor modal notes that might get the serpents up out of the basket on this one. Uh, mm. He starts getting speedier phrases over the B section and works into some edgy and angsty tone and rhythmic figures for a very intense solo. Chambers has a little vibes line that I thought was going to be the start of a solo, but instead the percussion continues over the bass, working into some drum soloing from Chambers instead. Everyone joins back in on the B section, then it's time for a little bit of vibes soloing over a slowdown to the end with some final blowing from Carter. And we're going to end up with uh, Moon Dancer, and this is a... Uh, tuned by Carl Ratzer, an Austrian uh, jazz guitarist who had an album of this title with this tune from 1998. And so you end up with a ballad here, uh, a pretty solo intro from Germanson on piano. Chambers is on vibes and drums here as well. Piano and vibes work the melody lines together. There's a rising syncopated line in the melody that's sort of a hook to the melody, and it catches it when it comes back around. There's a lot of extra percussion in here as well, along with some shaky, also tinkling type sounds, and some bird-like kind of noises in there as well. Chambers gets a relaxed and ringing vibes solo, and it all ends up with a slow wash of ringing piano and vibes. So this is a very atmospheric, but yet incredibly rhythmically complex recording that shows off the intricate drumming, flowing vibes, and composition skills of Chambers. Still going strong at 80, 
Great bass work from Lewandowski and Coleman, uh, giving us those strong ostinatos for something to hold on mm. through the uh, busy rhythmic play and complex meters that are going on. Uh, Power and Carter add some cool sax to the tunes, and also more vibes from Michael Davidson, and fine piano work from both Germanson and Vial. That a lot to uh, sink your ears into here. It'll probably take quite a few listens to get to the heart of all this material. Yeah, indeed. Um... You told me like Joe Chambers, he's 80 years old. And then last week we heard Kenny Barron 80, in his 80s. Yeah. Also Martha Argerich and um, Maurizio Pellini in the classical world just turned 80. And we just heard them too. And I tend to listen to these musicians really closely because, you know, I want to be 80 myself. And I just, yeah. you know, just it seems to me that they're at this, um, I, I notice that I'm sort of slowing down a bit, you know, as I hear <laughs> my 50s. But these guys seem to really have a, a lot of uh, complex ideas that they're able to render really yeah. well in their recordings. And Joe Chambers is really no exceptions. This this album kind of sounded like it's going to require, you know, a few listens to really mm. get into it. And I was thinking, I had asked you about it, you planning to get this album, but I think, you know, maybe I will. I liked uh, the whole like groove orientation of this album and also the fact that he's just you had mentioned all these like changing time signatures and some of them yeah. are pretty complicated and just to be following i mean he's been doing this all his life but nevertheless at that age to just yeah. you got to stay on your toes to really be able to oh yeah solo mm. and find the uh you know the the beat on some of these time signatures and um you know i, I just kind of listen to what these people do and i'm saying oh boy you got to just keep your mind going you got to keep doing what mm. you're doing and maybe even uh expand on it until the end yeah it, so interesting grooves um i liked all the light latin and even african like influences on this album you heard some really direct african ones and um your usual swing as well i liked uh the uh ostinato patterns in the bass there are a lot of those uh this is a, a recording that's produced it doesn't sound like a live recording it sounds like all the instruments are well it may have been live but i mean all the the instruments are you know separately mic'd so they all come across sounding you're really clear. Mm -hmm. and, um, so I like that. And I especially like the vibes, I think. He gets different sounds, sometimes round and resonant, sometimes muted and metallic. And the compositions I thought were really thoughtful. Uh, the playing was thoughtful. And it was just a good listen all the way through. And uh, if you're really paying attention to it, there's a lot to hear. And you can really uh, get a lot of rewards from this. Yeah, you can enjoy it on different levels. As I mentioned, you know, it's got that kind of vibe and the, the yeah, you can hear from the vibe band or you can really the hypnotic ostinatos yeah. so the first couple of times i just put it on casually listening at night and i thought oh okay yeah a lot, a lot of nice stuff but then when i tried to sit down and you know do my usual uh analysis into words i was like oh man i gotta go back and listen to that again a couple of times yeah it's because, really hard to um, do there's a lot of stuff going on there so, you know especially mm -hmm. rhythmically and uh, with all these time signatures and the sort of structures are a little unusual in spots so you can really dig your um ears into that and go deep and figure out all the things that are going on there. And uh, yeah, also impressive uh, bass work here, especially Lewandowski to, uh, you know, keep things tight and locked in over all these changing rhythms here. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting recording. It's a really great uh, week for jazz bass, I'd have to say. There yeah. I liked all three of the basses we heard this week. Yeah, really, really good. Um, melodic and also rock solid rhythmically. Right. So. Of course. They have it, some drums, but, you know, all, all of these guys are more than just drummers. They're at least uh, composers as well, and Joe Chambers can do a little bit of uh, 
everything on vibes and he plays piano as well and uh so very versatile and i think it's good to uh pick different instrument leaders because they you know they bring things uh differently and of course if the drums are the leaders i'm going to be mostly focusing on all the rhythmic things that are going on just naturally but in a couple of weeks maybe i'll get around to doing a bass led episode because i think bass players especially if they're composers too they see music differently from that yeah. bottom note and everything pivots above it and they see harmonic possibilities different than piano players or guitarists right. to do so yeah. uh, bass players write some interesting compositions so should explore that too but next week we've kind of got <laughs> our theme we're gonna have some uh, old favorites old favorites of ours yes yeah, I've got three uh, soloists that I uh, like a lot. And um, I've also chosen, uh, this one of them, this is going to be a lot of work, um, Ver Veronique Jean, the um, French um, soprano singing um, mm. a record that's getting a lot of attention right now in the classical world, uh, Poulenc's La Voix Humaine. And um, the, <laughs> this is, what I want to say about this is really complicated. I've already heard the recording and it's fantastic. You should pick it up or listen to it. But it's uh, it's it's going to be a complicated uh, sort of discussion. Yeah. Or sort of, yeah, I'm going to have to really think about what I want to say about this. But I, I do like it. I would highly recommend it already. So make sure you you've got that. that. You've got Hilary Hahn too, right? Hilary Hahn before. again. And yeah, her album from uh, October of last year. And then there's a new album by uh, from just released in January by uh, Patricia Kopanjinskaya, who I can't stay away from simply because. See, the thing is, <laughs> a lot of times, like I'll get to, okay, we've done three or four recordings by this artist, okay, we can skip this one, but I can't skip Eddie from her because she's always really compelling. <laughs> I never know if I'm going to like it or not, you know, because yeah. she's very, she takes a lot of chances, and I really like that about her. Right. This one, she's with um, the Turkish pianist Fazil Sai, or hmm. Say if you're French. And uh, I'm kind of curious to hear what that's going to sound like. I haven't heard that album yet. And in jazz, we're going to hear a trumpeter that we like, Alex Sipiagin, who's he's recording too much stuff for me to uh, get to everything that right. he does. But I want to do this one <laughs> because he's got one of our favorite pianists, Dave Kikoski, on there. And also we've got uh, Diego Rivera, who we heard is recording last year on Positone. And here he is again with uh, Art Hirahara, another one of our favorite pianists. Yeah, we like and, him a lot. Uh, we were listening to that when you were over last week, and uh, that's got some really, uh, really good stuff on it. And then... Right, for, well, for, the, uh, for the anniversary episode, anniversary yeah, we, episode uh, yeah. we listened to the new Art Hirahara at, yeah. at the, the cave, yeah. the, <laughs> the mountain cave, mountain the mountain lair. And then I've got a, just a really cool one that I did post on the YouTube during the week, and that's... Uh, Bass flute with organ trio. I can't <laughs> wait to hear this. That up I yet. really can't it's wait really to hear great. this one. You're gonna love that one because so. you sent me a video. That you, I think you put it on Facebook. Yeah, I did. Too. Yeah, it's so, uh, it's quite an instrument. I really need to hear yeah. this album. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a, a fun one because uh, I like jazz flute, but bass flute's really cool. And then everyone who listens to the show knows that I can't resist an organ trio. So yeah, we're yeah. gonna go bass there again. Anything is really cool <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, if you want to know that uh, complete list, classical and jazz, uh, not too long after this episode gets published, I'll have it all up on a playlist on Deezer, and there'll also be a link to it on the Facebook, so you can. Uh, Come over, check that link if you want to listen to the music before next week and get an early start like we will be tomorrow. <laughs> get oh, ready boy. for episode 104. Yeah, I got to really get to work on this uh, Poulenc. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I might want to get that one in early in the week too. Cause, uh, yeah, well, I'm the one that has to break it all down, so it's going to be kind of yeah. hard to do. We'll see what I can come up with here. Right. So that's what's coming up in the short term. We're also trying to get an accordion and a reedy type of special episode in the works, but still waiting on a, a new yeah, release still, to come out. I, so. I got these accordion recordings I want to do before <laughs> they yeah. get too old, but we're waiting for some certain recordings to come out yeah, before we do for that. The Klaus Pyre from Fractal Beauty that we heard uh, last year. And uh, there's just one track available, even though it was supposed to be out on the 17th. So I might mix that with either some more accordion or a harmonica recording because, uh, you that know, that could be cool. All mm. reedy kind of things there. So that'll be coming up shortly as well. All right. That'll about do it for episode 103 of adult music. And thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo be sure to check out those other podcasts I mentioned at the beginning. you find the links for them at the end of the description, and the promos will follow the end of this podcast. Anything else you want to add in, Mike, to close out this week? I'm just eager to get back to the stereo and start uh, <laughs> listening to if In fact, the jazz things you picked next week, I'm really kind of eager to hear these, actually, so I'm really ready to uh, put on the headphones stuff. and listen yeah. to those. Yeah. All right. So all listeners out there, you keep listening as well, and we'll be back to see you next week with episode 104. Gerald Albright, Rhea Snyder, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist. That's something came from Baltimore. And be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.